our Eternal Weekend review and an interview with the champ on episode 73 of So Many Insane Plays. We've recently returned from the most important event in the vintage calendar, a weekend of friends and community, but also big plays, compelling stories, and virtuoso performances. We have everything for you, including an interview with our new North American vintage champion, Andy Markiton. We'll take a hard look at the vintage metagame and compare our predictions with the actual field, analyze the top eight decks, matchups, and much more. Join us for episode 73 of So Many Insane Plays, our annual Eternal Weekend North America review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Great to be here, Kevin. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. As always, we begin our show with a few announcements. Steve, you have some upcoming events uh, in California, yes? We certainly do. Uh, the Berkeley Eudaimonia crew has put a tremendous showing up at the Vintage Championship with two of our players uh, top eating the Vintage Championship tournament, including uh, uh, Eric Virgo, who uh, top aided both the Legacy and Vintage event. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but so come out and compete against us. We have another event at Eudaimonia on November 19th, Sunday, November 19th. Um, it is, as always, uh, a good time. Last event had over 20 players. So I expect I expect uh, to be some pretty good competition this time. Excellent. And here in Michigan, we have our next monthly vintage at RIW on November 5. That's a regular unlimited proxy event at RIW in Livonia, November 5. And I I hope to see some of you there. Cool. So it's been a somewhat eventful time in the VSL since last time we recorded, even though it's only yes. been about two weeks now. So, Steve, we've got some updates from our performances as well as the, the league as a whole. Uh, and I think of note is just the other night, Reed finished locking in first seed in the whole event <laughs> at eight and one, which I is, think that's the best performance that we've ever seen in the VSL. Well, I started out, I started out one year at six and zero, but then I ended up six and third, and I was I locked in the first seed six <laughs> three. I mean six three. Yeah. yeah. Well, Reed's eight and one performance think, is very strong. I think we've seen seven wins before. I think Eric gotten there has gotten there a couple times, but I don't. I can't remember an eight and one before. That seems it's you know I could be completely wrong about that. But you're the only one who actually beat Reed one. You're, you're his loss, right? Oh, yeah. Boy, that didn't even occur to me that I was his only <laughs> loss uh, two weeks ago. That's impressive. <laughs> Remind me what he was playing. You were playing and he what was you playing were playing. workshops, and I was playing my blue-white pumpkin spice deck. Right, right. Which, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the name. I submitted that name to Athena with a smirk because I, the explanation that I gave to her was that this brew is only for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> that that was the joke it was not specifically about this time of year although that you know the, the relation is clear but the idea was just that this is a short-term only thing and it's only for the vsl i had a number of people ask me at champs so are you playing spell quellers this weekend no that, that was only for the vsl but, yeah but steve you and i uh 
are still in a position to make the playoffs, which is impressive, I think. <laughs> I, I Honestly, after my 03 performance in, in week one, I did not expect that I would be able to say that. But an 03 plus a 30 means I'm still in the hunt. That's pretty cool that both of us could make the playoffs. And uh, hopefully both of us do, but hope, you know, at least one of us uh, would be nice if one of us does. Um, yeah, I mean, this has been this has been a real this has been one of the most fun seasons since the early seasons. You know, it's been really exciting. It has. I mean, and that's not just for me because I'm participating. That's part of it. But I also think that the combination of all factors, the participants, the commentary, the decks, the the Brewers challenge, it's all come to bear and made for some really interesting games. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your pumpkin spice deck. <laughs> well, I talked a little bit about it on stream. But for those of you who didn't actually watch that particular commentary of the VSL, this is blue white control. And it's very similar to modern Jeskai, you know, the, the solo mentor kind of lists that are just descendants of the old mentor lists. But I realized in brewing for the VSL that for two things. I realized one, Spellqueller is a card that I absolutely love. I've, I played with it right when it came out and it was yes, fun. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, and, you do. Uh, <laughs> I still have a strong affinity for it. But I also realized one it's, other thing. It's a, it's a very control aggro card. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, there, I realized another thing in the process of just considering Spellqueller, and that I, and that was that the modern Jeskai lists don't have to have red. They red is very good. Dak is very good. Pyroblast is very well positioned. We've covered these things on the on the show a number of times, and red has great sideboard cards against workshops, for example. However, all of those things can be replaced in some degree or another. And what you get out of it, you get a little bit less power, because I do consider Dak to be a more powerful magic card than Spell Queller, but what you gain is, is better consistency of your mana base. You narrow your decision trees in terms of how you have to fetch. You can more reliably fetch basics and, and get screwed on color uh, that much less often, that kind of thing. And so that was really what I tried to maximize, was making the deck two colors, filling the holes, so I had to take, be a little more creative than usual Jeskai sideboard plans, especially against shops, and then just having the deck be very consistent, which I think it, it was. And on the flip side, I decided to go whole hog into playing all four spell quellers just because of the, the league. You know, if it was Vintage Champs and I was priced into playing this deck, it still wouldn't have four spell quellers in it. But I figured, what the heck, Brewer's Challenge, let's, let's try something fun. And it all just kind of worked out. I had a fantastic match against against Reed specifically, where the consistency of the mana base, mana base plus my particular sideboard cards, personal favorite being Hercules Recall, really just came to bear. Yeah. It was yeah. it was incredibly synergistic. And I I mean, I, I think I got a little bit lucky with Reed's game one mulligan, but still, the fact is, is Hercules Recall really pulled its weight. Snapcaster Hercules Recall also pulled its weight. And in general, I just had all the counter spells I needed against you, your ad nauseum tendrils list. Uh, I don't think that's a great matchup for me, but if I draw just all the <laughs> counter spells all the time, then one one thing that I have it as an advantage against that particular ad nauseum list is that you're a little bit threat light. You don't have as many haymakers yeah. as the normal like draw seven, right. uh, you know, show combo and tell bargain exactly. Yeah, so yeah, the, the the normal restricted list combo deck, as right. I call it in my history of vintage. Yeah, exactly. So uh, things just worked out in my favor for our particular match. So that was Pumpkin Spice. Why don't you talk about that Ad Nauseam deck? Oh my god, I love this deck. This was... The, the Brewer's Challenge is really right up my alley because I love <laughs> brewing and I love... You know, there's different ways to brew, right? You can brew from scratch. You can There may be some some synergies or, or tactics that have been in the back of your mind that you really wanted to mess with. Mm -hmm. But because of my you know long experience with the format, 
I feel like there's a it's it's a little bit like there's a lot of things that I can mess with or tinker with, right? And I can I can go back and and draw out. And this was something I was very excited to play, partly because first of all, people haven't played with ad nauseum in a long, long, long time, right? And it's an incredibly powerful card. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of so I'll talk a little bit about my deck, my card choices, and how I approach designing it. But big picture, it's five mana card that kind of approximates Yawgmoth's Bargain. And with the restriction of Gitaxian Probe, Dark Petition took a big hit. And with the unrestriction of, of Yawgmoth's Bargain, I thought it was a perfect time to break this out. Um, one of the things about Ad Nauseam that I mentioned on Twitter is that Ad Nauseam overcomes Notion Thief. It overcomes Leovold. Mm-hmm. It, over, it overcomes... There's a, n- a number of effects like that, you know, where uh, that, that Ad Nauseam just gets completely around that are played in the format right now. Sure. That it, it also gets over things like, you know, Sorcerer's Spyglass on Bargain or Phyrexian Revoker on Bargain, which are, you know, obviously Phyrexian Revoker is ubiquitous. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so I thought it was a really interesting card to try and rebuild. And I also think it's actually surprisingly well-positioned. Like, I actually seriously considered it for the Vintage Championship for a number of reasons. One reason is because the workshop decks, which are usually the combo decks nightmare, for reasons um, that that we'll talk about with Andy uh, in our interview, um, you know, they just have fewer spheres than ever. So the workshop deck today is basically a speed aggro deck that uses a bit of disruption. And it turns out that that's much easier for decks that have Chain of Vapor and Hercules to deal with. So one of the surprising things I discovered in developing this deck is how awesome the Workshop matchup is. Now, unfortunately, I didn't get to demonstrate that against Reed. <laughs> uh, I did give him a turn turn one kill, but in game two, I had plenty of options. I just My hand was just a little wonky. I couldn't pull things together. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but you know, so what I did was I went back into the archives, and I was it, did, it didn't hurt that I was... Um, working on some of the chapters around, you know, the history of vintage champ- chapters where Ad Nauseam was released. So as you probably may recall, Kevin, Ad Nauseam was printed with Tezzeret, the Seeker. Right. And, and Ad Nauseam, this Ad Nauseam is not a card. So when you think about Magic cards, I don't know how older mag- vintage players or longtime vintage players, let's not call us ourselves old, uh, <laughs> but long t- longtime vintage players kind of think about or remember older cards. But there are a lot of cards that we remember, but we remember as being kind of failures. You know, the, that really didn't pan out. Sure. Ad Nauseam was not one of those cards. Ad <laughs> Nauseam, if you go back and look at the archives, it has a tremendous number of tournament victories. And I don't just mean like a 45-player tournament here or there, which it won plenty of. Ad Nauseam won one of the Bazaar of Moxon and won a 300-and-some-player event. So this is not a, a card or an archetype that was kind of like a, a just a glass cannon that couldn't win big events or you know lacked resilience. No, this was actually an archetype that crushed for a long time. Like and it, like there was like a three year period where you could look and find it win major events, you know, all over the place. Mm-hmm. But it kind of disappeared. You know, certainly Dark Petition kind of drove it away. But the real reason it started disappearing, I think, were mental misstep was kind of brutal to this archetype. Yeah, and then the workshop decks just became so good, and then the Jess guy, you know, the the uh, uh, blue stew Xerox decks got so much better with with uh, Treasure Cruise and Dak Fade and all that kind of stuff. Flusterstorm, Flusterstorm, no, Flusterstorm was a big, big reason. Yeah. So if you think structurally about the environment, think about the environment right now. Number one, the workshop decks don't have Chalice, Golem, or Thorn. 
the um, Flusterstorm is at an all-time low. Really, I think it is an all-time low. Pyroblast. Uh, Pyroblast has kind of replaced Flusterstorm. Mental Misstep is still everywhere. Um, so structurally, if you think about the biggest problems, you know, Chalice Thorn and Golem are gone. Uh, the Workshop deck is a speed deck, which is focused on attacking. And the, the blue decks have record, you know, uh, like I said, Flusterstorm. I mean, I personally am a gigantic advocate of Flusterstorm. I mean, you know that. You know, Flusterstorm is like one of my favorite cards of all time. I love Flusterstorm. I've been running Flusterstorm. Like, I think when the VSL started, I was playing like two or three Flusterstorm in every one of my blue decks. Right. You know, basically since Flusterstorm's release, I played it in, you know, almost every blue deck. And for the first time, I'm not running Flusterstorm. And I don't really feel bad about it. I've kept, I've kept testing it, you know, throwing one into my decks here and there and keep removing it. Um, I love Flusterstorm, but <laughs> but the fact so just structurally, I've, I've already said this, but structurally, the metagame is actually surprisingly conducive to the ad nauseum. Also, unlike Bargain or you know whatever, you don't really need Yogmoss Will because the ad nauseum generates all the you know the uh, the storm, so you you don't have to worry about Graft Digger's Cage or Leyline of the Void. I mean, pretty much ad nauseum just plays right around that kind of hate, right? Um, which is nice. So you can dodge a lot of the, the uh, dredge hate. Um, but there were a number of design challenges I had. Number one, almost all of the... So first of all, how do you compensate for mental misstep, right? <laughs> I mean, ad nauseum and mental misstep coexisted for a while, but mental misstep is just everywhere and has been since late 2011, which, you know, ad nauseum... I, th- I think that's probably when ad nauseum started going away is when mental misstep was released. And then Flusterstorm was kind of the nail in the coffin. Mm-hmm. Um the first thing you have to do, I decided, was I needed four mental missteps. But because this is a deck that relies on life, you it's a really challenging needle to th- to thread. And so what I'd recognize is that I'd have to slim down an already slim down mana curve, which means that if you go back and look at all the ad nauseum li- lists, they run generally two or three cabal ritual. And I decided I had to go to zero. I just had to if you really wanted to maximize your life. you know. Um, and so I added a Mox Opal, which is pretty good to help compensate and the four misstep. And of course, Gitaxian probe is another kind of thing that eats up your mana. But now that Gitaxian probes restricted, you know, you're, (laughs) it's not, you know, it's not a big deal just to run one, but the other things I had to figure out are number one, how many tendrils to run back in the day, everyone ran three tendrils, but as I was playing it over and over again, the tendrils, you, 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 here's the challenge. You need a tendrils, right? You absolutely have to find a Tendrils when you cast Ad Nauseam because right. you might not have a Tutor or a Cantrip or a Top Deck Tutor or a Cantrip or even a Tutor to find a Tendrils. Right. So you want to maximize your probability of hitting a Tendrils with Ad Nauseam, but you also don't want to hit a Tendrils too early because then it hits into your ability to ramp up Storm. So it's a really tricky balancing act. So the deck I designed, I had to test it a lot to figure out you know, what are the combinations of cards that can allow me with two tendrils and to be reliably be able to play Demonic Consultation? Well, you saw in the, in the VSL, I cast Demonic Consultation, and then I think I, what, Yog willed and cast it again for tendrils. The reason, I obviously wasn't able to explain this on the in, in the show, but the reason I cast it again instead of the Ad Nauseam was because I looked what I removed with Demonic Consultation, there were zero tendrils removed. So I, I knew it was a safe, a relatively safe uh to play it the second time, as opposed right. to Ad Nauseam. The Ad Nauseam, I thought, you know, I'm probably, I'm, my chances of winning with Ad Nauseam are probably like well over 90%, but I felt like my chances of winning with Demonic Consultation were even higher. Sure, um, sure. Since I hadn't removed any tendrils with the first one. So I actually think I put a lot, I put a lot of work into this. Now, the one card that I would consider changing is adding a preordain or two, 
I would definitely not cut Demonic Consultation and probably not Imperial Seal. One of the things that you need to do with this deck, Kevin, is you will tutor either for the Ad Nauseum or the Pactive Negation. Pactive Negation is so good in this deck, and that's the <laughs> one of the reasons to that's one of the reasons to play this. The two reasons to play this deck over like a bargain deck is not just the tactics I just you know mentioned, overcoming Revoker, Leovold, and Notion Thief. But also because you get to play with four Pact of Negation, and you get to play with Demonic Consultation, which are unbelievable. They're amazing right. cards. Right. And they, I mean, Pact just trumps the cards that see play today, like Mindbreak Trap and Force of Will and all that stuff, which is awesome. So I, I really encourage people to try this deck. Just if, if you're not sure about it, you're skeptical, just put it together and try it. You know, just try it and have fun. And I'll give you the sideboard plans real quick. The sideboard plan against Workshop is you bring in four Herc... Four uh, Hercules Recall, one Chain of Vapor, there's one Chain main deck, uh, Time Twister, the Bayou, the Tropical Island, and two Ancient Tombs. That's ten cards. Wow. And and then you take out the four Pact of Negation and the four Mental Missteps and two Duress. So you you'll, you can't sideboard all the Duresses. And Duress is sometimes okay. It takes a Sphere or a Mindbreak Trap or a Thorn or something. Um, but um, you, don't, you, you don't have enough. But basically, you go up to like 16 land post-board and your game plan shifts, so it's no longer just about casting Ad Nauseam. Obviously, you can Hercules Ad Nauseam for like 14 or less life and likely win, but you also can just Hercules and either Time Twister, or Hercules and Yogwill and Tendrils, or your Hercules and just, you know, DT Yogwill Tendrils. So there's a lot of routes to victory, but it's much more of a Hercules game plan post-board, where you're trying to just develop your mana a little bit, more like how DPS plays against shops. Sure. So, sure. so that's and it plays very well at that game. You didn't really get to see me do that because I, I drew way too much land against Reed. I think I drew like <laughs> five or six, maybe even seven lands. If I had drawn one business spell, I would have been able to probably to go off. Yeah. Because I drew, I drew like two Hercules. I think you definitely had um, multiple turns of window, or you yeah. could have won with a lot of different things. Yeah. And then against control, as I said in the VSL, the plan I actually developed was to bring in. I tested defense grid, and you just you just don't want to reveal defense grid with ad nauseum. It, the two <laughs> life actually makes a difference. Right, right. Uh, the plan is actually you sideboard out two basics, and you bring in the value and the trop, and you probably want to keep all four chromox because the chromox is good when you like remove one Xanad and print another. It's another green source. Right. But you sideboard out probably. I usually sideboard out some number of pact of negation. Because Pact Negation and Xanad Swarm are kind of at cross purposes a little bit. <laughs> sure. Um, um, so maybe like three packs go out, and then you bring in one other card, maybe the chain, and you bring in the four Xanads and the two lands. But then in game three, when your opponent, like you, keep brings in or keeps uh, swords, then you sideboard out the Xanads and go back to your game one game plan. Right, which so is cool. It's pr- it's pr- it's pretty amazing because it feels really good when you like you dress your opponent and they have swords to plowshares when you have no Xantids. <laughs> but the deck is just awesome. I think it's actually quite viable and really fun. And I I'm really proud of the time and effort I put into developing it and tuning it. And I feel like it's a it's a good example of what's possible in the Brewers Challenge. And yeah, I just encourage people to play. It's a lot of fun. I five owed one of the uh, leagues, but in my fifth match, I after beating the workshop opponent, I um, conceded to him because i didn't want this published the saturday before our first vsl match uh, right, uh right. the trimester i didn't want people to be able to see what i was playing so um and i haven't played it since obviously the the vsl because i'm working on other things but uh, <laughs> naturally and uh just for the benefit of our audience if your deck is 40 cards and there are two tendrils still in it you have 
less than 2% chance to exile both of them with right. demonic consultation. Right, right. As a, but as opposed, I thought it was theoretically possible. I could like ad nauseum into like two ad nauseums and, you know, Yogwill and, you know, a, a string of ones and, right. and, and not be able to win that turn. The, I, will, I will mention one other thing. There are a number of games that I encountered online where th- this is a very skill intensive deck, obviously, but the key the key heuristics are are straightforward. You just gotta you you want to duress out the counters. If you have ad nauseum, you tutor for packed. If you have packed, you tutor for ad nauseum. Nothing feels better than playing ad nauseum with two packed of negations. But the <laughs> one the one thing I will and it's an instant, so you can time it to like when your opponent plays sacks a fetch land or something, you can play ad nauseum. And obviously, as I said, it gets around like pyroblast and stuff like that. But one thing that sometimes happens that I will just have to caution players on is sometimes you will ad nauseum and you'll play packed and your ad nauseum will be very awkward while you hit a ton of mana, but you don't find the tendrils or you or you have to like play Imperial Seal and pass or you have to something like that or you can tendrils, but it's not quite lethal. So you have to ad nauseum again. You have to be very careful. You will usually almost always be able to pay for pack triggers. I had one game that was really funny against a control player where I did double packed and I got like a ton of mana, but I was only able to get myself like do a tendrils for like, I think it was like 16 or something. And he was like at 17 life. (laughs) I had to pay 10 mana in my next upkeep to pay for the pact, including tapping a, a a mana crypt, a mana vault. I mean, and, and I was able to like win the following turn, you know, but anyway, you, you'll sometimes have to encounter and just, just be aware of that, but it happens occasionally, but it's all otherwise an incredible deck to play. So <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. I met, encountered someone at the vintage championship who was playing this deck who was doing really well, but he added two preordains because he couldn't find a demonic consultation and didn't own an Imperial seal. And I felt so bad for him because demonic consultation is the best card in this deck. <laughs> it, <laughs> I think it literally might be the best card in the deck. Yeah. Like, like in terms of the strategy, what you're trying to do, it literally just might be. The so demonic consultation is so awesome when it finds the right home. Yes. <laughs> so fortunately for you and me, we do not play in this next uh, trimester of the VSL. I'm up the weekend after Hall, not weekend, the week after Halloween, and you're up the week following. Yep. So, <laughs> so there's a chance. Your favorite if, holiday, <laughs> right? If both of us can go two one or three zero, we might find ourselves both in the playoffs, which would be pretty awesome. That would be pretty awesome. Now, who's in your who's in your group? My group is Eric Froelich. Rich Shea and Paul Rietzel. Do you have a read on what you think they're going to play? Um, no, Shea's played Jeskai in in workshop, so he's yeah, off of that. So we just we know that Rich is off of shops. So he probably played Paradoxical, maybe. Yeah, it could maybe. be. Uh, Rich yeah. has played his uh, his creature brew already. Rich? His Bant creature brew. Who? Not Rich. R- I'm you sorry, mean Paul. I'm at Paul. I mean Paul. Thank you. Yeah, has played that, and I don't honestly don't remember what other deck Paul played. So. Th- my, I would have to go back and study. Uh, he played. He played. You, you mean the Deep Root Champion deck, or do you mean his? De- he played Eidolon Delver. The ah, first, the Delver tri- deck. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. So, so he's, he's played. Got, he's kind of yeah. cheated. He's played. Uh, he's played Xerox decks both times. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're pretty different Xerox. They decks, are. Though. They are. Yeah, they I are. give him credit for brewing creature decks. So I, I would still put a decent chance that Paul is on another creature deck. He could play. Um, Boy, he could play Bug. A hundred. If you wanted to, you could play White Eldrazi. Ninety-eight percent. Eric's playing Shops. I'd be shocked if he doesn't play Shops. He always plays the best deck, but you know, maybe he shocked us in the past. Yeah, it's true. He could could be on Dredge. 
<laughs> he's played he's played just guy and grixis thieves so um, there's a, I, I agree with you that there's a very good chance he's on shops however there's no guarantee he might be on outcome he might be on dredge he pulled he brought dredge a few, multiple times before i'd be willing to bet 50 bucks that he's playing shops <laughs> anyone who wants to take that bet i will i would i, will. I would say it's probably the most likely deck yes yeah open <laughs> i'm not yeah i'm not big into predicting exactly what someone will play in the vsl especially in this brewer's challenge i think it's part of the fun too yeah I, fair I enough mean, the worst case scenario is that you don't know what the first person you're playing is on, and I can live with that. <laughs> we get well, deck lists for the next two matches, so. Well, Erin could literally be playing anything. I, yep. I, I, I heard her say she was testing something online. I don't remember what she said she was testing. So if you really want to, if you really want to, you know, prep Kevin, you might find out what she was messing with. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, she's not in my group. She's in your group. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I've got you've got Rich Shea, Efro, and Paul Ritzel in mind. Oh, Paul, right? Yeah. yeah. So no, you get to you get to be the one who it'd be hilarious Discovers. if you match one against Aaron and she was playing <laughs> something ridiculous. <laughs> I am extremely excited to play another spicy brew. I'm playing cards that have once again never been played in the VSL. You know, and it's go ahead. I, I'm I'm racking my brain. I think I'm also playing cards that have never been played in the VSL. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that at least two cards, well, at least one card in my deck has never been played in VSL. I've got, oh, I've got. A I guarantee you. In fact, I guarantee you, there's two. And now that I think about it, there's two decks or two cards have never been played in VSL. That's pretty That's cool. Su- super cool. Yeah. Well, well I'm looking forward good, to it. Win, lose, or draw. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. Good luck to uh, to you, and uh, and then I'll play the final week, and then it'll be the playoffs. And for the playoffs, how's that going to work? Do you know? I, I don't know. Uh, it's going to depend on if there is needs to be a playoff for the playoffs, because the <laughs> odds of there being multiple people tied with the same record in fourth place are are non-zero. There's actually a reasonable chance that that there could be a tie at like five and four, or even yes, four and five. A lot. There's a lot of possible ties. Well, especially with Reed going three zero in his last pod, he's, it actually yeah, pushed it pushed the crowd together in the middle. I mean, it's kind of funny because the standings right now are Reed at eight and one, and then the next best record is four and two. <laughs> there's That's a impressive. four game. There's a four game gap <laughs> between f- first and second place, and there's four players with four wins and two players. W- Sorry, that's not true. There are there are six players with four wins and two players creep. with three wins. You and I have the three wins. Um, so anyway, it, it's so- obvious. Yeah, anything could happen at this point is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, if... So it's Bob, Aaron, Rich, and Eric that have the 4-2 record. So if they all go to 5, then if they all go to 5, if they all get one win, which seems likely that most of those players will get at least a one win, yeah, then you and I will need to get two wins to be in the playoffs, I believe. Yeah, right. That's that's why I think you and I yeah, I think that we can't really hope for much without a two one showing. Yes. And I think a two yeah. one showing for us will put us at least in Prob- the running, perhaps tied I, for fourth. Almost certainly into the playoffs somewhere. <laughs> yeah, into the into the discussion. <laughs> to so be we'll a, see. Cl- to be a clean sweep, it would have to be th- three of the four twos would have to get two wins, which is un- less probable. Well or, that's actually no, not that's possible. not true. That's not true. That's that's not true. If one of us gets Three goes three and zero, oh, and then two half of the four twos get two wins. Then it's a clean sleep at six wins. Yeah, 
but so a lot depends on how we do actually that's pretty interesting <laughs> we're still in the running we're only we're only one you know game off of the pace or a match yeah. off the pace so so cool. it'll be an interesting conclusion to this to this uh this season of vsl but enough about vsl <laughs> we're here to talk about eternal weekend so let's kick off our report So, Steve, we have a lot to talk about for Eternal Weekend. We talk about other events, the old school events and the trials. We're talking about that main event, obviously. We've got an interview with champion Andy Markiton. We're going to talk about all the decks, how they did, matchups, uh, win percentages. We're going to go through the top eight decks in specific. There's just a ton to talk about. But the first thing about Eternal Weekend is our appreciation for all of the people, all of you listening right now, who came up to us and expressed your appreciation for the show, who came up and said, hello, appreciate what you do, or hello, just want to shake your hand, tell you I heard from a number of people how we helped them get into Vintage, or how they appreciate the the way we handle our and present our data, and it helped them prepare for champs. Uh, just every manner of complimentary and nice, th- uh, thankful thing that I hear from a bunch of people and I know you did too as well, Steve. I just want to say thank you to all those people who came up to us and said those wonderful things. Yeah, I, I cannot second that strongly enough. Um, I had at least I, somewhere between a dozen and two dozen people come up and say how much they enjoyed the show, which we invited folks to do. And it takes a little bit of courage to go up to two strangers or one or two strangers and and, and say that. So really appreciate it. It was, it was wonderful to hear that. And um, and whether you did it over, you know, online or in person, it was it was nice to meet every one of you, and I um, I really enjoyed that, and and also getting to hear what people thought of the the show. One one guy told me at the old school event, he said that he's a stay at home dad, and he kind of listened to our entire show from front <laughs> to back, which was which was really cool. And other people, you know, who said they got into the vintage or old school from listening to our our podcast. So, you know, you know, it's. It's it's wonderful just to meet people and and, and hear all that. So thanks Absolutely. thanks for that. We do this because we love vintage and loving the community is an important part of that. So thank you again. If you didn't come up to us or get a chance to this year, please do so in the future. Obviously, we travel to a few other events. Steve, you a little bit more so than I. But at the very least, there, we've got a date for next Eternal Weekend, whenever and wherever that might be. So please take that to heart and do say hi if you're in the area next year. Let's talk about how the weekend progressed up to champs. On Thursday, as we discussed in our prior show, Steve, you played old school. I played in the trial. Tell me about your experience in old school. (laughs) Well, you know, the old school event, which is organized by Eternal Central, is probably one of the most unique unique, uh, tournaments you can possibly experience. If you haven't experienced it at least once, you really haven't lived. We we ended up playing on Thursday the biggest old school tournament of all time. What was the final number? Like 120 right. some Just, players, Kevin? Yeah, around 120. I don't remember the final number final, but that's it. Which is unbelievable. I mean, that's unbelievable that, you know, that this it's grown every year. I mean, I think it was like the first year when I got third place, it was like 55, which was the second year they ran it. The then last year it was like 90, and then this year they we added 30 or some more players. But the vibe is totally unique. People are wonderful. They're there to have a great time. You know, um, I, 
what people love so many different things about old school. What I love about it is that I love exploring the metagame space that I so enjoyed when I was, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, you know, when I was just getting into magic, I love that metagame and I love playing it and exploring it. And those cards are so nostalgic and they're just aesthetically amazing. Um, and so VS, I mean, uh, old school magic rather is an, is a space where you can explore metagame, ancient metagames that no longer exist and relive the early days of the format. Some people enjoy it just for brewing. Some people enjoy the community, which is awesome, but, I, but it, there's so much to enjoy about it. It's hard to know, you know, the one thing that you enjoy the most. Um, this year I ended up playing the blue red control deck that I written tournament reports about for the previous two years and every year i made a make a couple tweaks i literally played one test match for the, for this tournament <laughs> in the entire year intervening year and for the third year in a row i made top eight again which is a really a really great feeling uh to represent the uh the bay area playing old school but also you know just to continue to to do well in this event is 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 awesome um the, the if you go and look at my tweaks uh, you know i made a couple tweaks every year the different changes I made from last year where I cut Stone Rain and added a second Disrupting Scepter main deck. In the sideboard, I added a third Control Magic. I don't remember what I cut. I think I may have cut an Earthquake. Um, but in the VSL interview, Kevin, Randy, and I talked about this event. I said, Ke- Randy, I'm looking forward to our re- <laughs> rematch, and I believe it will be be decisive. And the reason I say that is because Randy and I have played every single one. Of, we've run into each other in every single one of these tournaments that we played the first year that he and I played, we played in the top four. I was undefeated in the Swiss and there was a top eight playoff. And then he ended up winning the tournament. And this, the, the other, the um, last year we played in round two and I got second place on tiebreakers at the end of the tournament. And I won that last year. And I won last year on chaos orb flips this year. I actually won uh, with an explosive game three opening that included black Lotus Mox Ruby, Volcanic Island and Ancestral Recall, Red Elemental Good Blast grief. and Blood Moon. And I was on the play. Yeah, he was on the play. He goes, uh, Volcanic Island. He went. I don't remember he what he played. He went, what do you do? Some he kind posted of island it. and go. Yeah, it was it was a non it was a non basic. And he posted it. We put he posted a uh, a Twitter picture of this. But uh, he pl- he goes like land go and I go Black Lotus uh, land Mox Ruby and I was trying to figure out how to sequence this. And Kevin, you remember watching my match in the top four against yep. him two years ago. And I was struggling how to sequence it, but um, I I decided to fire off the ancestral, and he decided to fire off his ancestral, which he didn't even want to play until a couple turns later because he wanted to not have to discard to hand size. And I had the red blast, so I red blasted it, and I dropped Lotus and Blood Moon. And I don't think Randy realized this, but the first year we played, his deck was much much stronger against Blood Moon because he had in his sideboard four blue elemental blasts on top of four disenchants and a lot more basics. This year. If, I don't remember exactly his sideboard, but I think he only had like one blue elemental blast and the four disenchants. So his deck was much, and I don't think he realized how he tweaked it in that <laughs> direction. But um, so you know, it's funny. It's it's a weird thing, right? That once a year you take the deck that you played last year, you go to this event, and you replay the match with these minor tweaks. But it happens on an <laughs> annual basis, as opposed to like next month, right? It's once a year, and I mean, it, it was really fun. I look forward to playing him again. Um, I uh, I lost my 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 loss was to um, I lost to a, uh, a a disco troll player that uh, that that just outdrew me tremendously. But um, 
the dis- second disrupting scepter was much better it was specifically designed to help against the deck because i had lost you know um to rant i had a tough match against randy the previous two years so i think i pretty much gotten where where i wanted with the blue red deck as much as i enjoyed playing old school though kevin i really really <laughs> needed buys and so if if the trials are going to be the same d- year same day as the old school event and it's interesting i haven't made the vintage champs top eight since i've been playing the old school event and i think there's probably a relationship there so i'm I have to rethink as much as i enjoy the old school event it, unless they make the trials on a different day i'm probably going to have to play trials next year just because i live on the west coast and it's really hard to get to trials but you played, played trials one trial unfortunately because of the way they timed the trials they're set to start at one and four respectively but the first one didn't start on time so it was just as i was losing my match in round three of the first trial that they kicked off the second trial like the middle of game two and i'm in a losing position and they like your round one pairings for the second trial are up if if they had started the first trial on time and if it had run a little bit faster i might have been able to hop into the second trial right after i lost in round three so this is an area of feedback that we should give for Nick Cost next year, which is that ideally you would structure trials where people can, not at a slated time, but you just have signups, right? Would, do you agree if that would be a better structure? It, yeah, I don't know what the threshold is, but I bet if they cut off at between 16 and 32 players, I'm not sure what's the right number, one of those two numbers probably, um, then they could probably fire more trials and more people would feel like yeah. they got a chance. Now, I want to point out that because of the, the they didn't cap the trials they had cap they left them fixed at five rounds of swiss but anyone who went five and oh got a buy and yeah got a buy so it could have right. been like three so or four it players wasn't like you had to just win the trials so don't speak it was just you had to go undefeated which is good i think that's the right thing to do and but that's i think good. the flip side yeah. to your point is that if you're going to cap them at five rounds i'm sorry if you're going to set them at five rounds then cap them at that many players and just fire them as they fill up and that and that way, I think more yes. people will feel like yes. they've got a chance, a fighting chance. Exactly. Um, and then people can actually play in multiple yeah. trials per day, as opposed to being yeah. in the position you were well, in. It was a little that bit of a feel bad, but I don't blame them too much. I mean, they've got they do a lot of good things at Eternal Weekend. This, but that is some constructive feedback. So, unfortunately, as I was just saying, I went I went four and one in my trial. I stayed in at that point because there was basically nothing better for me to do with my time <laughs> than uh, part of the reason to play in a trial, aside from winning the buy, is to get practice for the next day. And I did get good practice. So, I stayed in. I would say the buy experience is a good one for those of us in the world who can get at tournaments that are run by our TOs to, um, to, to earn them. But sadly as you just put it the west coast has just has a lack of options in that regard and it's it's too bad and there are of course people s- scattered all over that have the same yeah. pro- issue so i think i think that would be the but let's transition then kevin so what um no actually tell me tell me uh talk about what you played well i played if you mean the deck that i played i played my grixis Duretti list that i've posted on twitter i played the same exact 75 in the trial and in the main event and part of that was because of the practice that I got in the trial told me that the deck list felt pretty good. Uh, it's ironic in hindsight. I, I didn't really feel this as it was happening, but in hindsight, I'd lost basically all the matchups I felt good about going in and won all the matchups that I was worried about <laughs> going in. So the reason to play this Grixis Duretti list is because it has a good shop matchup. It has more removal than most decks in the format do. 
yeah, tell us so a little bit about your deck, just because people haven't seen it. A, a, a Xerox deck like Jeskai, but instead of swords to plowshares, I've got a braids in the main, and instead of the normal creature and, and uh, planeswalker package, I've got two Snapcasters, one Vendillion Click, one uh, Tassiger the Golden Fang. Those are the four, four creatures. And four Planeswalkers. One Jace the Mind Sculptor, one Dak Faden, and two Doretti Ingenious Iconoclast. The deck also has some significant one-ofs. Uh, a single Thought Seize in the main, a single Pyroblast in the main, and a single Kolagon's Command in the main. Otherwise, it's basically what you would expect in terms of restricted list Grixis good stuff. I've got Demonic Tutor, no Yawgmoth's Will. I've got three Preordains and a couple of Sensei's Divining Tops to flesh out the the uh, Xerox style package. The deck has issues with Oath of Druids because the way I built it, I wanted to not skimp on anti-shop cards in the sideboard. So I've got full on another uh, seven cards I bring in against shops in the side. And I wanted to have Game Against Dredge. The best anti-dredge card I could find for this particular build was Leyline of the Void. Now that might not sound like much, but it's important to recognize that given the current trend toward Hollow One and Gurmag Angler, uh, and also the fact that the pitch dredge with their mental missteps and then and then full-on eight removal spells coming out of the board means that Grafdigger's Cage is, is very challenging to defend. Leyline of the Void has advantages in that you can have it in play and still pay mana to find either answers, that is, additional answers in the form of Force of Will to stop their removal, or use things like Flusterstorm out of the sideboard, which I do. And also, it just cuts off Gurmag Angler in a way that Grafdigger's Cage does not. So, oh, and also, <laughs> I originally had Yixla Jailers in that spot. I had to mulligan too many hands that included Yixla Jailers because I couldn't cast them on the first turn. Testing uncovered that unless you have additional sideboard hate, like Cages to go with Jailers, uh, turn two Jailers simply not fast enough on the draw in game three against Dredge. So I had to find something that was faster. Leyline of the Void means I can, and not that I'm happy about it, but I can mulligan as aggressively as four or three cards to find it. And if I do find it, it's functional. Other sideboard cards are frequently don't have that feature. Even Grafdigger's Cage, sometimes you can go down to four and have a, ca- a hand with Cage, but no mana in it. So Leyline of the Void got the nod as the thing that I could do best with my sideboard slots. And the rest of the sideboard includes Mindrake Trap and a Fluster Storm, and, and I do have one Grafdigger's Cage. All that was said because Oath was very a challenging matchup, given that I chose not to run cages, four cages, just a single one. What happened? Well, naturally, I faced Oath in the trial and beat it, and then I faced Oath twice in the main event and beat it both times. <laughs> On the back of my one Grafdigger's Cage and countering their threats. And also what happened, I was rewarded by facing and defeating Dredge two times in the Swiss for the main event. Yeah. In fact, I went (laughs) between the main and the side before I started conceding to people in round nine of the tournament of the main event. I was four and one in the trial. I was six and two going into round nine of the main event. At that point, I had only lost two, two Jeskai decks and another Grixis deck. Matchups that I felt good about on paper, including Including the trial. Including the trial, right. I lost to Justin Franks, our friend on Just Guy in the trial. And the, so I was felt good about my workshops and my blue matchups. And I only faced workshops twice in once in the trial, once in the main event. I won, I won both of those. I only played shops twice out of a dozen matches all weekend. More than a dozen matches, in fact. 
And I lost all my blue matches, but all of those were very close, very nip and tuck, draw dependent kind of things, which you just accept when you're going to play a Xerox deck versus a Xerox deck. Um, so in the end, I think the deck was mostly a success. I would change a few things because a lot of my blue playing opponents were were not on the more aggressive, not, they weren't on Delver, they were on slower Snapcaster and Planeswalker only kind of list or primarily and my deck was not well positioned. A braid is not good when your opponent is just going to play a snapcaster <laughs> and and try to beat you down that way. It's not it doesn't fight off Jace the Mind Sculptor like you'd want with a lightning bolt for example. So a couple of mm-hmm. couple of tweaks I would make in that regard, but otherwise the deck acquitted itself quite well over the course of the weekend. Cool. I mean, I love the fact that you developed your brew and and you played it well and you know, you 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 metagamed well. You just sounds like you ran into some yep. tough matchups. I feel, I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I can't be I can't be upset about X and 1 in a trial. I can't be upset about going 6 and 2 in the main event. And the, my last two rounds, I conceded to both my opponents, one of which was because he was still in it for the um, the budget prize, and the other one was round 10, and, and we didn't... I mean, <laughs> there was nothing to gain from that match, so I just scooped. But the deck felt pretty good. I, I feel pretty good about right. it. I don't think this is necessarily the way to go in the metagame going forward, but... If you would like to defeat Mishra's Workshop decks and you would like to do it with some style, then I recommend this list. Awesome. So how about your list? Steve, you played a pretty sculpted Jeskai list. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been, I played Jeskai all through the summer and, and I really, you know, obviously the restriction of Monastery Mentor just crushes, is, is crushing. Um, but I, I played a pretty well, I think a pretty teched out list. I What happened was I didn't have buys in round one. I played Ibr- against Ibrahim <laughs> Aldridge, who was... A local here, uh, but who made top eight with Oath. And in game one, literally at the beginning of the tournament, his first play was uh, Orchard, Black Lotus, uh, Time Walk, Oath of Druids. And I feel like that's just how my day <laughs> went. You know, that was literally the first play. And he won the wow. role, too. Did he have... I think he, he won had, the role. Uh, Orchard, um, Lotus, Time Walk. What did he Oath into? Oath of... Oath, Sphinx. <laughs> the Sphinx. Um, his list has the one Sphinx wind. and two Gristlebrand, so right? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely looked for answers, and my deck has answers. Just couldn't find them fast enough. I won game two, and in game three, um, game three, I definitely punted. Uh, but it was very close. Um, I, my memory is a little bit hazy, but basically, what happened was um, he was on the play, and he goes land Voltaic Key, like underground sea Voltaic Key. And my opening hand, I I um, I played Black Lotus. And I could play. I had a. I had um, force of will, black lotus, and d- did I keep a no land uh, hand, I can't Kevin? Recall. I just remember that pivoted on fragmentize. Yeah, yeah. So my hand had uh, fragmentize, containment priest, stony silence, uh, force of will, and a blue spell. And I don't remember whether I had a land or not. I mulled mulligan to a, a. I think I mulligan to five or six, and I had no land, but I had black lotus, and I scryed away a non land to the bottom of my deck, and I drew. I think stony silence. So I could play Stony Silence and Fragmentize with Forcible Protection, or I could play Containment Priest and Fragmentize with Forcible Protection, or I could play... I think there's one other thing I could play. I, I don't remember. But I ended up going um, Containment Priest, Fragmentize the um, the key, and he had misstep. I Force of Willed the misstep, which was a mistake. And then he had another misstep, he had, uh, another misstep for my Fragmentize. And then he untapped and he goes, Academy, Black Lotus Academy... Uh, vampiric tutor ponder into the the time vault and then he goes off with key vault um had i obviously i could have just feigned you know like uh you know oh 
darn, you know, I guess you're going to get to go off. Let him try and go off and then force the vamp. And my top card, by the way, was a land <laughs> after that. So I would have, I think I had a pyroblast in hand too. So I would have been able, I would have been in that game very quickly had I just forced the the time vault. But he also, he also had abrupt decay in hand. It's, it just would, I wouldn't have lost that game right there, but there's no way I would have said I would have definitely won. <laughs> right. Anyway, I, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. It was, you know, I, it reminded me of that one VSL match where I don't remember who I was playing, but I was playing Doomsday and I had like overwhelming hand, which I didn't have in this case, but I, like my opponent had like triple misstep and I just like played like, I could have just played all around the one mana spell all the way, but I was just trying to go for the win and he had like triple misstep and I <laughs> lost, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was a bad, bad beat. And then my second loss was to Michael Scheffenacre, who was playing a workshop deck where um, in game two, he resolved Trinisphere, Sphere Resistance, Chalice at one, uh, Revoker, and a bunch of other stuff, and I beat it. In game, th- in game three, he mulliganed to six, and he was clearly uh, unhappy with his hand. And it was Mana Crypt, Mox, Trinisphere, which I forced, but I only had one one land, and I couldn't. And I played Preordain and Brainstorm, and couldn't find a second land. And I forced a Chalice at one, but he didn't. He wasn't losing Mana Crypt flips, and eventually he played a, a Ravager and a uh, a ballista and another ravager and he like literally at 15 life he attacked me to 14 and then <laughs> killed me <laughs> in one shot with the ravager and ballista i think i, I mean maybe i should have forced the mana crypt and i win the game you right. know it's like but <laughs> right. who knows i just it was it was frustrating i knew going to this event i mean i said to you i think even the day before i said i have a kind of feeling of dread about this event just because I felt that shops was the best deck and I didn't want to play shops. Even the podcast, I said, I think I didn't come out and say, I think shops will win this tournament and our preview show. But I said, I think shop, I quote unquote said shop has a good chance to win this event. When we talked about our shops, we'll get to that in a second, but that's, that's what happened. I kind of was feeling down uh, about my deck. Not that I didn't feel I had the best deck I could play. That wasn't shops. It's just that that was the problem. I felt like, like to really win this tournament, you and I, did about as well as you can do by playing a blue deck, but I felt like, you know, or I guess a complete brew like Brian Kelly's Oath deck, and Oath, obviously Oath made top eight, but going into the event, I felt like it, and if I was going to play a non-shop deck, this gives me my best chance for winning because it's the best deck I can play against Dredge and other blue right. decks and shops, but I still didn't feel great. I, I just didn't feel great about an, what is it, eight? Was it an eight-round tournament? It was ten. More than that? It was a nine or ten? Yeah. Ten-round tournament. <laughs> about not picking up multiple losses to shop i mean with mentor restricted it's just it's so hard it's so hard to win game three when you're on the draw you know it's just i i mean i i ran i ran a full package i mean i have like you know as much hate as you can possibly have that is an ancient grudge i have fragmentize and by four three by force i wanted four you convinced me to run three and add a shattering spree (laughs) Although I think I think the by for the fourth by force is better. Um, it would have won me game two against Michael Scheffenacre earlier uh, had it been the fourth by force. Um, but but anyway, it's just it's really difficult. I think the shop deck is just clearly the best deck in the format, um, and I don't think it's particularly close. But we'll get we'll get to that. Yeah. First things first, though, we have a treat. This is not something we usually have on so many insane plays it'll only be what do you think steve the fourth interview we've done maybe <laughs> we've interviewed a well, lot of champs I don't, we've interviewed uh we, mark, mark lenigra we've interviewed mm-hmm. yeah we interviewed mark um i can't remember who <laughs> i else, would argue that we haven't interviewed well, 
many champs. Okay. <laughs> we oh, had I'm... Ray Robillard on the show. <laughs> Fair enough. We've had Mark Lenigra. And we had a special uh, champs episode from Gen Con that had Paul Mastriano and Brian DeMars on post champs. But yeah, oh, that's, yeah. I think it may be it. I must, I might be forgetting one, but interviews are not, are not our mainstay, but we're, we have a great one for you. Andy Markitin is a fantastic guy, a fantastic champ. And you get to now hear us talk with him about his experience leading up to and winning the vintage champs. So we have a very special guest this episode. You might know him as Montolio. You should now know him as your 2017 North American Vintage Champion. We're joined by none other than Andy Markenton. Hello, Andy. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Kevin. How's it going? It's going great. We are honored to have you. We'd like to let our listeners get a little bit of insight into you as a player what you did in preparation for champs, and then just what the champs experience was like for you. How's that sound? Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Uh, I mean, first, I'd love to talk about my experience. I mean, you know, for I think a lot of us vintage regular only guys, this is like the pro tour. So uh, winning this tournament uh, last weekend was just an incredible feeling. Uh, still at this stage, I mean, I think we're three or four days post and it's still surreal for me. So, um, you know, Winning the tournament was fantastic, and uh, bringing home that Black Lotus painting was even better. I can imagine. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, as you know, you've been a, a, a member of the vintage community for far longer than I. I mean, what a great experience going to these events and, you know, the amount of people that you meet. And, you know, it's uh, it's just overwhelming. Like, uh, Well, I couldn't agree more. Short for... Yeah, and, uh, you know, I just wanted to say, like, the amount of support and, you know, people that have reached out to me has just been uh, just so humbling. What a great experience. <laughs> well, you, you've earned it. You've earned it. Let's let's talk about what brought you to this point. I mean, you just alluded to it. You have burst onto the scene, the vintage scene, that is, within the last few years. Tell us a little bit about yeah. yourself and how you got into vintage. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much, I've been playing magic the gathering since ice age uh mostly at a kitchen table level you know for the first uh 10 years or so and it was when magic online came around i don't even know how long that is probably 13 or 14 years ago now it's it's been around for a good while and um yeah i started playing i don't know about five or six years into magic online a format called classic mm-hmm. I, I don't know how familiar you are with uh with classic well We've but, mentioned it on the show, but it's been a good many years since we needed to. So do us a favor and tell the audience what Classic was. Yeah, Classic basically was like the redheaded stepsister of Vintage <laughs> uh, for the Magic Online only format. And, uh, you know, basically the only thing we didn't have in comparison with Vintage, despite it was significant, was the Power Nine. Right. So we had a lot of we had a lot of powerful cards that we were playing with. You know, obviously we had, you know. Four brainstorms and four bargains, and you know we had Yogmas Will and Library Alexandra, and of course the big one for me was we had Mishra's Workshop. So, kind of my genesis came from the classic format because I played a lot of Mishra's Workshop decks and 
had a lot of success with the deck. Okay. In that format. And basically the entire time, uh, you know, I was part of a small group of guys that played this classic. The whole purpose of us playing with was to wait to play paper vintage or, or magic online vintage. Right. Uh, you know, we waited probably four or five years anyways in preparation for it. And, uh, by the time it got here, uh, you know, it was a pretty easy transition for me for the most part. Uh, you know, basically where my decision lines as a workshop player came into play was, you know, I guess I need to learn how to cast Chalice at zero now. <laughs> Essentially, I, I'm half adjusting, but I mean, the sequencing and the nuances were very much the same. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of where I came from. And, you know, I think it was in, you know, very shortly after it came online and, and don't quote me on the dates, Kevin, but I, I think it was in 2014 where I remember watching on Twitch uh, for the first time, Champs. Mm-hmm. It was Eternal Weekend, and I remember seeing Roland Chang on camera and going, you know, God, that's so awesome. Like, you know, I, I of course, I knew Roland was a world champion, and uh, I'm like, pretty much started out like, I want to I want to be doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was right at that moment that I decided I was going to buy into paper, and, you know, the, the rest is kind of history. Like, I, I came out, I think it was 2015? Yeah, it was 2015 that I came out for my first NYSE in Champs, and I had, you know, I had pretty good tournaments, but I, I don't know if you recall, you you and I had some discussions when I first broke onto the scene from Magic Online, kind of what the difference was like from being a Magic Online only player to paper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, uh, despite I, I think I did pretty well, uh, there was a lot for me to learn coming into paper, you know, tournament management being one of the big ones. And... So that was uh, an experience for me, and you know that led into uh, a wonderful 2016 for me in paper. Definitely, where you know where I uh, I ended up going to the NYSC, and uh, that was my first tournament of the year, and I actually won that tournament with uh, Ravager TKS. God, that seems like an archaic deck now, doesn't it? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. It's how far we've come in such a short period of time. I know, I know, and. Uh, and then, yeah, I ended up going to the Waterbury and landed in ninth with the same deck. And, uh, of course, as you know, I, I top eight of champs last year with the same deck as well. So it was a great year and kind of an, you know, my big foyer into paper, I guess. And it was all leading up to this. I know. Yeah. It was, um, wasn't able to close it out last year. Unfortunately, I, I felt like one slipped, slipped by me, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it led into my win this year, which was, of course, my only tournament that I sadly got out to, and um, it's uh, it's it's just hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to be honest. From my perspective, it is not hard to believe. You've been a consistent performer, and I would have put good odds on you winning the tournament at the beginning of the top eight if someone had asked. Oh, I appreciate that, Kevin. That's kind of you. Thank you. So talk about then, obviously, there's a lot of workshop experience you just described, years worth of it. But talk about your specific prep for champs, your your deck selection somewhat goes without saying, but uh, how about the tuning in terms of specific card selection? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm first and foremost a shops guy. And, uh, you know, I, I was pretty sure that I was coming in on shops right from the beginning. And it, because, of course, it's the deck I'm the most comfortable with. And one of the problems for me, Kevin, was as soon as I settled in on this, I went into one of my deepest losing streaks I've had in several years on Magic Online. Hmm. I, uh, uh, if you ask my wife, she'd tell you because she heard about it an awful lot. But uh, <laughs> I was, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I it just felt really bad about it because, you know, as you know, since the restriction of Thorn, uh, obviously the deck has put up some numbers on Magic Online, but it's been a big uh, transition for me, as I'm sure it was a lot of shops player. I mean, it really changed the way you approached, you know, your opening hands, for instance. Sure. You know, before you used to be able to very easily when you had the four thorns in there, be able to, you know, open up with a control hand against something like PO. And of course you couldn't do that anymore. So it was really a lot of back and forth as to, you know, is this a strong enough aggro hand to keep without a, without a sphere of resistance or, you know, having a sphere without enough pressure afterwards against certain decks. And uh, so I, I think I just had a bit of a rough transition getting there. And, uh, I seem to be losing to everything. I was losing to Dredge, Jazz Guy, Standstill, PO, UR, Delver, Bug, Storm, you name it. <laughs> and so, um, but anyways, I got on the phone and of course I realized a lot of this was variance at that point. You know, you, we all go through ups and down streaks and, uh, of course other people were still putting up numbers with the deck and I'm like, uh, I, I'm obviously I'm just going to go forth at this point. And that was when I got on the, on the phone with Rich and we both figured out that we were going to be playing workshops and we kind of really just hammered it out as to what type of shop stack we wanted to be playing and the one thing that i knew i was on if i was playing workshops was going to be overseers okay and um you know i've kind of been of the philosophy with the the workshop decks that it's better to always be low to the ground than casting higher casting cost creatures like precursor golem main deck because you know, as I'm sure you know, these are battles of attrition with lands, and it's always better to be the guy that's able to cast your spells than, you know, struggling to to get five mana to cast your precursor. So we had uh, we had a, a good long debate about that. Uh, you know, Rich wasn't necessarily keen on Overseers, but, uh, you know, in my, in my outlook, Overseer is a card that it does one of two things. You either answer it, or you're going to let me untap with it, and you're going to see what I can do with an overseer. And from my experience, all it takes quite often is just untapping with it once, mm-hmm. and things are just too far out of line. I mean, it's not always that way, but it, it quite often is. And, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, you know, particularly post this tournament, that, you know, overseer is a, um, in itself is just not that powerful card outside of the workshop mirror, and I completely disagree with that. Mm. This card is good against absolutely anything, uh, you know, barring that you're getting Hercules recalled or whatever. It's uh, it just, you know, that we deploy our creatures so quickly in this aggro style deck. We are like an overseer uh, spot removal looks really bad against it is what I'm trying to say, right. because you've already pumped your team up. So that was one of the first cards that we decided uh, that we were going to go with. And where the real battle for the deck began was the ancillary creature creature package, which basically came down to Chief of the Foundry and Hanger Backwalkers. And we both really wanted them both. Okay. But there's just a, I'll use the term an embarrassment of riches here. Like it just, there was, and that was no pun intended at rich, by the way, (laughs) Uh, that, uh, you know, we couldn't fit them all. And originally when we settled on things, we decided that we were going to run three or four chiefs just extremely good in the mirror and it pumped up all our piddly winks, which was really a nod to null rods. Okay. Chief was, uh, uh, gave us some insulation against that because of course the overseer and things like hanger back walkers and ravagers are an abomination when there's a null rod on the table. Right. But, but ultimately one thing that I couldn't get past, uh, was that I, the more I thought about it is I really wanted to have hanger back walkers in my deck. 
It's uh, it's not a card that I've been playing with a ton over the last couple months because I feel like this deck is just not really wanting to be tapping down and putting 1-1 counters on a creature. I want to be attacking full out. Sure. And it was uh, a little incongruent to the way I wanted to approach the game. But one thing I couldn't get past was that it is the one card in our deck that gives us an edge and a mirror being able to fly over board stalls. Mm -hmm. And it gives us insulation against the high majority of removal in the format, such as, you know, shattering sprees or a braids or, uh, you know, even a balance or something like that. Uh, it, you get some value out of the card. And it was on the night before that it, it, Rich and I did this independently. We both put hanger backwalkers in our decks at the expense of chiefs. And, uh, I can, uh, you know, a gut call type thing. And God, am I ever glad I did that, Kevin? The card was an absolute all-star for me <laughs> well, i'm looking at the list right now yours and riches and it appears that the only difference in the main deck between the two of yours is that you opted for yep. two hanger backs and one chief of the foundry and rich had zero chief of the foundry and three hanger backs so yep. you're saying you you basically those three two or three slots were independently changed by the two of you the night before well I, i'm not sure what day rich changed his, oh, okay. but mine was done the night before we kind of we kind of had this very large discussion about a week before champs and we kind of went off on our own and uh you know touched base here and there but gotcha you know we made we we both made some late game switches like you i did the ratchet my ratchet bombs and uh powder keg were null rods the night before and uh riches were spy glasses or null rods turned into spy glasses interesting very interesting yeah wow how momentous so, does that change look in hindsight well, it, it looks pretty momentous, <laughs> I would say. That that was not lost on me, Kevin, when I drew that ratchet bomb in the finals game three. <laughs> wow. Well, speaking of yeah. that, so we witnessed one of the most amazing finals performances of all time, and specifically that ratchet bomb. But uh, we'll, uh, Steve and I will be talking about the finals later on in the show, and we want to get your perspective as well. But um, are there any other stories or moments from the event that weren't caught on camera that the audience ne didn't necessarily see during coverage? Uh, yeah, there was. I I'll start with a fun fact, and this isn't helping my cause any, but I think it's worthwhile sharing, <laughs> is that I, I did not win a die roll more than once that entire 10 rounds. I, I won one die roll. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's impressive. It, yeah, I, I don't mean that as braggery, but it was kind of... Um, uh, I, I think flabbergasted would be the word when, you know, I just kept losing every single die roll. It was, um, it's the worst luck I've ever had in that regard, but <laughs> I, I guess it paid off in the end, uh, in karma. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, the, the, there were a couple highlights for me throughout the day that were really cool matches and, and none better than round 10 on my win and in, you know, I, I won't go through the, you know, the fine points of the match, but in game three, if anybody saw that with the, you know, the, the, my, uh, my metamorph on Hellkite and, you know, what a, what a crazy, crazy game that was. Uh, borderline one of the craziest games I've ever had. If, uh, if you guys haven't seen it, it's on Card Titan, uh, round 10 against Russ Martin. But, okay. You know, I think on, uh, you know, I, I think he was on the play and it was like he had a turn one crucible of worlds and he followed up with a turn two worm coil and a turn two three, uh, turn three hell kite. Like that's how the game started off. Good and grief. It, you know, I had mulliganed to six in that game and yeah, I mean, good grief. Like how do you even get out of that? 
right? It's, uh, it's extremely difficult, but, you know, fortuitously, I ended up having, uh, you know, he had a double workshop hand and I ended up being able to get down a, you know, I think I had a quick chief and a precursor kind of to, to stall things out. But, you know, I, I think it's worth mentioning my, and I know you and I talked about this at the tournament, but, you know, my level of fatigue in round 10 was, um, unlike anything I've ever felt in a magic tournament. And, you know, I made some pretty sloppy plays in that, that game three for sure. One of which is where he attacked in with his worm coil, uh, six, six into my, you know, my, my three precursor golems and, uh, which were both four, four, all four fours. And I'm like, what's he doing? Mm. So of course I, I don't know if you saw this, but I ended up double blocking it and, you know, of course, it didn't pay attention to the Ravager and the hanger back he had on the table, which ended up turning his worm coil into a 10-10 on my double block with my two four fours. Ah, oh, I see, I see. Yeah, so that was a really pivotal mistake from me, and uh, you know, it's not something I would ever normally do. I mean, we all we all know the the trickery of the Ravager, and uh, anyways, it ended up making a real crazy game out of it. And uh, you know, to make a really long story short, I, I remember being down to one life in game three, and I had an 8-8 Hellkite in play, and he had a uh, an inspector in play, and he cast a second inspector. I had no man in play, Kevin. Nothing. Yep. So yep. if I don't answer him right here, right now, my tournament's over. I have a Sol Ring in hand, which I drew the turn before. He's got, of course, a Crucible Wasteland lock on me, and he. And what do I rip off the top? A Mox Pearl, Mox Mox Pearl into Sol Ring into a Blistat one. My Hellkite. I sit back. He attacks me with his two Inspectors because, of course, he knows he's dead next turn. You know, I block both his creatures, sacrifice my Bliss to shoot him to the face, and swung back in for lethal with a Hellkite pumped off the uh, off of the Sol Ring. And uh, what a Anyways, what a crazy, crazy game that was. And, uh, you know, after that game, I, I don't even know how I got there, but it was, uh, I'm glad I did. So you ended up playing all 10 rounds. Did you, did you not draw at any point? Uh, you know what? I couldn't. My, I ended up drawing the last seed in Ross Martin in the top eight, and he was the only guy who did not, who was not able to draw in. So it was kind of a little bit of a reflection of what happened to me at Champs last year because I remember being, uh, I think I was, Eight no, and I was uh, I was I I got the the guys that were behind me. I was number one in the number one seed, yep. but the two guys behind me got to draw, and I drew the lower seed, uh, being the top seed, and he couldn't draw. Right, so I had to play it out. So it's kind of a similar situation to that this time around, and um, yeah, so things wave. My tournament wavered in front of my eyes a couple times for sure. It's just it's just amazing um, to perceive how. Even when you're eight and zero, the tournament is still so tenuous. <laughs> it's just incredible. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, in fairness, I, I think in you know the way things actually shook down. Like even if I had a loss in X two, I I think I might have been able to get there, but maybe not. Well, you, you certainly would have had very very high breakers, and as we know in hindsight, one eight and two person did make the top eight, so that could have been you. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But yeah. Anyways, that was the that was the one real match that stuck out for me. You know, I, Will McGrin would laugh at this because, you know, he's tried to talk, uh, talk to me about my games and stuff like that throughout the tournament. And I am completely inept at being able to, uh, recount play by play through my games. Uh, you know, I end up mashing two or three games together into one. And, uh, you know, I think that this is just more, uh, uh, 
because I'm, I'm so dialed in, you know, I'm not, I'm not paying attention right to those fine points and, uh, I'm just not able to recite them well. So, uh, I do apologize. I can't give you guys a lot better stories than that, but well, that's okay. It's, we uh, know how it is. <laughs> so in the, in the preview show, Andy, uh, I talked about the deck that you top aided in the vintage challenge, mm-hmm. I think on October 7th. And also the encounter that I had with you in the league where, uh, you know, I, I saw both steel overseer and chief of the foundry, but that, that game you had where you opened with black Lotus and Misha's workshop and lodestone golem. And what was it? A sphere or a thorn on turn one. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that now, actually. Yeah. That was pretty that crazy. Was, that was brutal. Um, but, but one of the things that we had talked about was in, in the preview show was the, the whole kind of spectrum of ways you could build the workshop decks from main decking precursor golem to main decking chief of the foundry to, uh, really, I think what you pushed, frankly, was steel overseer. And we talked a lot about how just a turn one uh, foundry inspector permits so much action on turn two, but by real, by emphasizing steel overseer, you gain uh, and and Kevin said this an advantage in the it's your trump in the mirror, even against uh, Steel Overseer and we we saw that happen on camera which was super cool. I don't remember who you were playing, but someone just went with I think it was in the top eight a real early precursor golem, and I think the commentators thought you were toast and you just you know stuck your neck out there, landed your Steel Overseer, tapped it once or twice, and suddenly you were in a commanding lead. Yeah, yeah. That certainly can happen for sure. I, you know, one of the overseer, of course, is excellent in the mirror. There's no doubt about that. Right. But, but, you know, when you're facing down an early precursor golem, you know, it's, uh-huh. it, it's difficult, I would say, more often than not. I mean, this is very board state dependent to be able to overcome it because the, you know, I would say I lose 65% of the time if I'm facing down a turn one or turn two precursor golem with an overseer. Uh, you have to have an incredibly explosive opening hand to be able to do that, like workshop into inspector, mox, overseer, and then follow it up with two creatures to be able to get over that. But, uh-huh. uh, but as I was saying a little bit earlier with this is, um, and one of the reasons why I have chosen to go low to the ground with the overseers and the, the hanger back walkers is that it's not easy to get five mana sometimes in a mirror. Because this is an attrition battle yep. of land. And yep. I, I, I think I played probably six mirrors throughout my five or six mirrors throughout my 12 rounds, 13 rounds. Did and you, did you, and you didn't have buys, did you? I had no buys. No. Wow. That's super impressive. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. It, it's, it's you, basically what you're saying is that the balance of probabilities, your, you know, against the balance of probabilities, regardless of what happens, whether your opponent has a slow start, an explosive start, or whatever, you just have a very consistent start. Whether right. they waste you or not, you're going to have game. Now, you might not be a favorite, but you will be in the game. And I yep. think that's the tack you took. Exactly. Exactly, Steve. It's uh, just you stay incredibly low to the ground. And, you know, like, I don't know how closely you guys have looked at some of those shops lists in the top eight. But, I mean, there's a couple lists that are running things like Crucible of Worlds in the sideboard that are coming in. And, yeah, sure, those right. can, those can be impactful in certain games. More often than not, and one of the reasons why I admitted them in my deck is we're just too fast to care about land. You know, it's right. You right. Know, yeah, I've got an inspector in play. Okay, you got my workshop. Well, you know, I draw a, uh, a wasteland or a mox. Well, there's my overseer and my hanger back or something like that. Like it's just we're going over top of them and we're fast. And 
And so I think it, I think as a general rule, and particularly in this metagame, it's just better to be fast and let them cast their creatures that are big and we'll all metamorph them when you get them there. Let me follow up on that point. So your deck is incredibly explosive, but it also ramps with Steel Overseer. Is your deck or any of the decks, and we, we're going to actually do a complete breakdown of all the decks in the top eight. Andy, in your opinion, is this the most explosive, work, fastest workshop aggro deck of all time? Uh, well, I, I, in a bubble, yes, it is, Steve. I mean, I don't know if you remember back, and this is a much shorter-lived deck, but you know the the affinity shops deck that was running Genesis Chamber and Skull Clamps. I I mean I think it's arguable that that was a more explosive deck. It didn't run yeah. spears, but of course that's a very small sample size. I mean that deck didn't hang around for long. Narrow deck, um, yeah. But when you look at things like you know the big players like Terra Nova and and Martello Shops, and you look at Ravager TKS, which was very big last year. And of course, you look at Ravager shops now. There is no doubt that this deck is just, uh, you know, the the iteration that I'm playing right now is is mean and lean, like it's fast and it will it will kill you, you know. So the last time I played workshops in a vintage championship was in 2010. Over the summer, I done really well with with Lodestone workshops, and I was like, Kevin, we've got to play this. And I didn't do as much prep as I, I wanted, but my big takeaway into that event, Andy, is that I crushed every blue deck but lost every mirror. And after that <laughs> event, after that event, I, I was telling Paul and Brian and a bunch of other people, I said, you know, workshops are amazing, but you have to have a good plan for the mirror. And yeah. you know, you are, in my opinion, the foremost workshop expert. Oh, thank you very much. You know, people obviously give a lot of credence, especially in the Northeast, to their locals like Will, who's great, Nick Dijon, who's great, you know, all these other great workshop players. But I've said, Andy, Andy is, in my opinion, number one. And I think you you not only have this overall mastery, but you are so dynamic and flexible in terms of your where you position yourself and how you position yourself. And, you know, so I knew you would do well. I was rooting for you last year because I thought after winning the NYSE and then a string of of victories online, I thought you, this is, it would be a very fitting championship for you. You are kind of, in my opinion, the shop's master and the person who is most deserving of all the shop's players of winning because you've been grinding it out for so long. And also you're Canadian, so it really <laughs> makes the North American championship, it, it really makes it, you know, really a, nor- a truly North American championship. Bravissimo, as they say, it was really amazing. Wow. It was fun to watch. And that, and that finals has to be one of the most dramatic i mean we've seen the uh chain of vapor finals against dredge but yeah coming coming back from that board state that is something no one watching that will ever forget <laughs> yeah that was uh first of all thank you very much steve i'm very flattered that's um that's extremely high praise coming from you and um uh i, I really do appreciate it and yeah that that game three was <laughs> uh tenuous to say the least it was uh he, were, were you nervous? Were you nervous in the moment, or did you feel like you had no. a, a command? You know, I like I, I'm I think I I can't remember if I mulligan that game three. I believe I did. I think um, you did. Yeah, and I, I went to say I opened up with a really loose six, but it had yeah. potential. What it had was lands. I know I had a workshop. I had a mox, and I had a an academy in my hand. As well as, I don't know if it was a wasteland as well as what it was. And, but I was very weak on power level when I was on the draw that game. And I had a, um, I believe it was just an overseer 
a metamorph and I had that ratchet bomb. Yeah. (laughs) But, you you know, you had to... Do the box ruby. But looking at that ratchet bomb, I'm like, oh, this is just, you know, not where I want to be. And, of course, it's an empty board state, but I'm like, you know what? It's got the tools I need. Uh, I actually had a dismember as well, and I don't know if I counted seven cards there or whatever, but, I mean, I maybe drew one of those off the top. But my point being is it was a very serviceable hand. It was a reactive hand, and, uh, you know, I didn't have much to pump the overseer up with. But, you know, when Rich, I I don't remember even what my first play was now. I I do apologize, but I know that... um, I believe I, I think your first play up. was your first play was your first play was Mox Ruby. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was Mox Ruby dismember and I wastelanded him. Yeah. That's what I did because I had to get rid of that overseer. But, you know, his next turn, he basically went uh, AWOL on me and just, you know, went all in on that 6-6 Ravager. And well, of course, it flashes before your eyes, right? You know, you're, you're going, oh, my goodness gracious. Like, how am I going to combat this? And uh it, it, I just was very fortuitous to be able that that Rich didn't draw any other pressure. He literally went all in on it, and uh, you know was luckily able to get that ratchet bomb down and stall him out. I, I think I I think I literally had two life left or one life left. Yes, no, you end, you ended the game at two life. Okay, you know that, there's so many things that I want to just make observations about if I can if I can jump in here, Andy, because first of all. After the discussion we just had about going a little to the ground, about consistency, about serviceability, doesn't that hand – isn't that hand just em- emblematic of, of your design approach that you eschewed all those grander, you know, explosive plays for this really middle, low to the ground, consistent, you know, just right in there, right, which allowed oh, yeah. you to just survive. So in some sense, it's a perfect representation of your design approach. And, and, you know, the, the other thing is, I want to, uh, one more observation than a question. Um, I thought it was so fitting that when he ramped that Ravager and the, you were looking for one more blocker before you could get that ratchet bomb to, to, to blow away the Ravager, you, you had workshop in, you see, you had academy in hand, which yep. caps for two, yep. and you were four life. If that had been an ancient tomb, it wouldn't have worked. Right. You needed you needed a, a workshop or a, an academy. Correct. But all those things just fit, fit together perfectly for you. One and then two two questions for you. One is, were you nervous? Here's here's an observation I've made. When people make mistakes, they're most likely to make a mistake at the kind of ultimate moment of a game or a match where they're most nervous and they feel like they've got the match in hand, and you know then they make an egregious error. I was the only thing I was nervous for you about was if you would forget to tap it on his end step, that ratchet bomb. And so that's why I was, I was asking if you had any nerves. I was like, you know, because that's the kind of wow. mistakes that sometimes happen. At the, but and the, the question I had for you, the, the real question it was, you know, in some sense, you targeting dismember, you had two options, right? He had the ravager in play and the overseer. The fact that you threw that dismember on that overseer and you knew, you, you could tell in your mind, you were locked in on hitting that overseer. To me, that's also, first of all, tell us a little bit of your thought process behind that. But also, isn't that too representative of your, I mean, how much respect you give the overseer? That, you know, an overseer, or, or like a 1-1 one, one or 2-2 two, two Ravager versus a just played, freshly played overseer, you felt that was the greater threat. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean it's it's a no contest for me. I I've played the overseer wow. many many times, and 
in the mirror. I mean, it is a mirror breaker. And just on topping, as I was saying earlier, with that just once, you know what? He casts another creature into it, and all of a sudden, the, you know, I'm facing down, you know, two three threes, and then, you know, he's sacrificing whatever it is that I'm targeting with the dismember, with the uh, the Ravager or whatever. Like, it, it was just not even a close contest, Steve. It, uh, he couldn't untap with it, and uh, uh, that game was over if I did not have that dismember in my hand. That's how I feel. It was... um an instant snap off. If there's Lock. any, if there's any card in that mirror that you have to respect, uh, <laughs> it's the overseer. And Rich and I were the only two guys on those in the top eight. So yep, um, yep. Uh, uh, we we we're going to do a breakdown very shortly in this podcast of the top eight. But I've to to kind of get ahead of ourselves. I think the secret MVP of the whole vintage championship was still overseer. And the fact that you dismembered it in the <laughs> instead of the ravager. I mean. I love the fact that you said there was no contest in your mind, but yeah. I think someone just looking at that board without really having an understanding of what happened in the top eight, or really maybe just seeing encountering vintage for the first time, would think that the Ravager is the bigger threat, right? Now all he has in play is an overseer and a Ravager, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and yeah. he has that explosive, explosive mana crypt. I mean, Rich drew very explosive hands. I mean, his his hand against your Chalice was ridiculously fast. <laughs> But, yeah, well, I still so. look back at it and I think, oh my god, I don't know how I pulled that one out, but uh, yeah, got got a little bit lucky, I guess. Mishra, Mishra was watching out for me. Yeah, Mishra is your patron saint. <laughs> <laughs> you you you're you're definitely the champion of the uh, uh, of the uh, taxing archetype of the O'Brien school. Um, so so I I wanted to reserve this question for later, but since we have you, um. You know, and, and obviously you're just fresh off an enormous victory. And Kevin, I want to make sure you get a chance to ask any questions as well. But is this the best workshop? If you were to put this head to head with any other workshop in his, historically, and I go back and look at the Trinistax decks, the Lodestone decks, even your, you know, um, Eldrazi, Thought Not decks, is, would this, is this, or the metagames they existed in, is this the best workshop deck of all time? Not just the fastest, but is it the best? That's that's a really tough question, Steve. You know, I, and I've thought about it a little bit. You know, when you go back to the, like, let's put it to you this way. If you ever gave me four lodestone golems and four chalices in the void, you guys wouldn't even know what pain is, like what we could build with that now. <laughs> like, you know, it's like it would be just an otherworldly beast. There's no doubt about it. That would be your best version of Worshops by a mile. But, you know, I, I think back to head like, to I head. think. Head to head, this would beat it. Head to head, yes, this would beat it. There's no doubt about that. Wow. 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 Let's just pause there for a second. Andy Markadin just said, head to head, this workshop deck would beat four golems and four chalice. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) no. Well, it's it's much lower to the ground, right? Right. Like, it's so much faster, and you're not as impacted by, like, you know, having four chalices, then that can be filler sometimes when you're drawing them in multiples and things like that. Like, this deck has no filler. It's uh, it's pedal to the metal, and this is built to beat workshops. And you know, workshops of old was not necessarily built to beat workshops. That was built to prey on anything that was non-workshop, and you had to have a solid mirror plan in the board. These these decks are innately built. Like my deck is built to beat up on workshops, and uh, uh, I still have the ability to fight the blue decks pretty consistently. So. You know, we don't ha- we don't have the same potency level against blue of, of as decks of old, 
Uh, I would say that much because, of course, losing Lodestone Golem and uh, three, three, three Thorns and Chaos, like Steve, that goes without saying how powerful that is, right? But, right. but you know, the deck, the, the deck has never, in its current iteration, has never been more vulnerable, uh, despite the numbers that you're seeing in the sense like, you know, I was telling Kevin before you got here that, uh, uh, you know, when you don't have those three thorns in there now, it really has mixed it up a little bit in the sense that, you know, things like Hercules Recall are just a beating and they're so much easier. Yeah. To, they're so much easier to cast. And, you know, that's where things like Overseer, you feel like he's a bum, right? When you pump up all your stuff and, you, you know, you get your hand sent back to by Herx, right? And you look at, you know, Lodestone Gollum and Chalice from two or three years ago. And, well, it was a hell of a lot harder to cast Hercules Recall. Back, yeah. back in those days. So it's a little bit of give and take. And, and I think it, it depends what, you know, what you're looking at, right? If you're looking at a broad metagame, is this current workshops better than the old workshops? Well, I, I'm not so sure. Um, but, you know, if you're going to put me up against a mirror against workshops of old, yeah, I'm going to beat it down for sure. So, um, but having said that, I mean, you know, look at, I don't refute the numbers of this top eight that we just saw. Like it's, I'm a little bit surprised by it, but you know, five workshops and three Oath of Druids. I mean, you know, this, the deck is for real. <laughs> Certainly is that. <laughs> so, well, Andy, we want to give you an opportunity to uh, to add anything that you would like for our listening audience, for the vintage community in general. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I, I really just would like to say thank you to everybody. I, I talked a little bit earlier about it. Like what a, what a wonderful experience for me this weekend. And, and I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, winning the championship, but you know, I've had such a, an outpouring of support and uh, you know, people reaching out to me and, and giving me well wishes and, you know, uh, just being great to me and, you know, uh, seeing everybody at champs and having an opportunity to talk with them. Like I know it's cliche that everybody says this community is just so great, but it really is. I mean, uh, the people are just what makes it for me. So uh, I, I really just wanted to say thanks. And um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be here and, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to carrying the torch over the next year. The people's champion, Andy Parkinson. <laughs> it couldn't uh, happen to a more deserving and nicer person. Thanks, Andy. Uh, thanks, guys. It means a lot. Well, congratulations again to Andy. Very grateful for you for joining our show today. And Steve, you and I will continue to analyze this top eight, but uh, there's not much more we can say really than great job, Andy. And we look forward to you defending your title next year. I'll be there. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, thanks guys. All right. So we want to start our analysis with our metagame breakdown. Oh, this is, I've been looking forward to this more than anything else this episode. <laughs> this is where we cover our predictions for each major archetype and minor archetype and compare them to the actual from the event. And this year was very instructive. So we've got a lot to learn here. No question. So let's start at the top of the house. We've got these roughly sorted, roughly, by how large a percentage of the field we predicted. This is not a perfect let, order because let, our numbers have a range. Before we get into specifics, though, let's just first give a shout out to the people who actually compiled the data. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Once again, we we owe all of this data to Ryan Eberhardt and Matt Murray, who not only did they do the work this time, but they did it in, in record, record time. <laughs> I have no it's, idea how. <laughs> it's incredible. They're, they just took the, the deck lists within minutes after the event was over, I think, and got to work. And so they had this ready in less than 24 hours, basically. So. I- I remember years ago, Wizards of the Coast sent me the GP, was it G, some Europe, European GP, GP Madrid decks. There was 2,000 legacy deck lists. They had them shipped to my house. And there was like a huge box. And granted, 2,000 is more than, four times more than 400 and whatever. But still, <laughs> right. within hours, I mean, not only did they have it up then by Sunday, they had a breakdown. But then on Monday, they had the complete percentages win percentages matchups calculations everything calculated yep and then we also have to give a shout out to jason jaco and eternalcentral.com which we'll link to has a, a complete coverage he, he has the standings of everyone who is 21 points or better including their names and deck and he scanned every single deck list all 400 and whatever it was deck lists they're scanned and you can scroll through them or download the whole file and see them all. So In the glorious handwriting of their offers. <laughs> so that is awesome. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. And excellent work. We could not do this kind of show without the help of uh, Jaco and Ryan and Matt. So yes. So what you need to, but also, you know, we'll, we'll create links so you can go to the, we'll create a link to the eternal central uh, coverage so you can see all the deck list and the breakdown and all the stuff we're talking about. Exactly. Starting from the top, then, workshops. We, we I pre- both... Go ahead. <laughs> I predicted 26%. Steve predicted 23.5%. The but, actual... Before, but before you give it away, though, I just wanted to caveat a couple things. So my original prediction was 22.5%, and we both said we thought the floor was like 20%. Yeah. And uh, I, I bumped it uh, a 1% at the end because my numbers didn't add up to 100. So I think my original prediction was 22.5%. In any case... Uh, we both predicted, Kevin, that workshops would be the most populous deck, although we, there was a back and forth as to whether we call it a single deck or not. Right, <laughs> you, right. But we also thought it would be the best performing. So we also said that, in fact, you looked at the September data. In, in our preview show, you specifically said, you, I'm quoting, that workshops had a 59% win percentage. Uh, for, all the, th- for all the challenges throughout September, yes. Right. All right. So go, go ahead. Take it away. So the actual metagame percentage for Wishers Workshop decks was only 16.9. Almost 10% less than I predicted, which is, to me, a bit alarming. I was about 5% off. Yeah. That's right. So we can talk to in a minute where some of that number came from because there's a corollary rise in another deck that you can probably anticipate, but that's further down the list. But we we also wasn't just we weren't just predicting percentages. We were also predicting kind of implicitly performance. We both said we thought. I mean, I specifically said I thought it would have a good shot to win. And I said I thought Rich and Paul and Brian and Hiromichi and all the best players would play shops. And and it turns out that shops had the best win percentage at fifty nine percent. As we would have as we would have expected. Yes. Yes. So its win percentage was exactly in line with its its uh, win percentage in in online. Uh, so it didn't overperform how it been do how it been doing online. In fact, it did identically. <laughs> so I just wanted to Pretty point much. that out. Yeah. 
So next in our list was the Xerox category. And mind you, this is a little bit of an amorphous category, but it includes all of the preordained decks, the solo mentor, the young pyromancer, those kind of things. Mostly Jeskai, but not entirely. Steve, you'll recall that we predicted separately Jeskai and Delver. Yes. In fact, Del- so- Delver, in fact, the difference between you and me on Jeskai was one of the big differences in our predictions yes. overall. And you said Definitely. that in the show. Yeah. Definitely. So overall, I predicted for Xerox... 23 you predicted 17 well let me also caveat this was the other thing that i bumped by one percent and at the end of the show i originally said 16 percent, and then i bumped it to 17 just to fill out numbers but go ahead well we're gonna have to talk about why that is right okay the actual was 13.8 percent almost again 10 percent lower than i predicted in total now the breakdown I predicted 15% just guy. You predicted eight and a half. The actual was 7.7. Very <laughs> close to yours. I predicted 8% Delver. You predicted eight and a half. The actual was only 6%. So close on Delver. I was way over, way over, almost double on just guy, which still surprises me a bit. We're going to have to talk about again, where those percentages came from then, because again, I was way over on shops and I was way over on the whole of the Xerox category. You less so you hit the Delver number pretty close on. I had, I hit the Delver number almost on the, I mean, I was for Jeskai, I was what literally within a percentage point. I was, it said 8.5 and it was actually set. I originally said 8% and it was actually 7.73. So I was like, for my original prediction, I was, uh, you know, about yeah. a quarter percentage point away, ultimately less than a percent. And then Delver, I was two percentage points away, two yeah. and a half. We both got the Delver number, surprisingly. Yeah. Okay, next is outcome. I said 12, you said 10 and a half. The actual was only six. Only six. And I think <laughs> some of that has to do with the success of workshops going in. I genuinely thought that more people would be excited to play outcome this year at Champs because it had been basically a whole year for outcome to mature as we discussed outcome was still somewhat immature going into champs last year but only six percent i i think that that this is a a, a, this particularly is revealing we did say i mean the floor for this was really low but the ceiling was really high this this of all the archetypes i think had the greatest possible range and this really just hit the floor you know i don't remember what we actually said the floor was right but, but i mean we we in particularly, you hanged a lot. I mean, you had originally, I think, had a higher number here, but I pushed you down when I pointed out that the last challenge had a, had like 12.5% men- uh, outcome in the right. entire top 32. So, you know, in, in part of this, it just oscillates up and up and down. I don't know if you noticed, but the challenge that occurred the day after the Vintage Championship was like heavily outcome. <laughs> so there's a yeah. huge divergence between paper and uh, online when it comes to outcome. It appears that predicting the outcome will be somewhat paradoxical for (laughs) the foreseeable future. Next on our list is bug. I predicted five. You predicted four and three quarters. The actual was 5.9. So reasonable estimate on our part there. Hey, you won one. (laughs) That's right. I was actually the one closer on Delver too. This is my second win. Uh, Fair enough. Right. But that's a half a percent. So anyway, and this one's a quarter of a percent. So I can't take too much credit there. Next, this one was interesting. Dredge. I predicted eight. You predicted 11 and a half. The result was 10, right in the middle of our range. And so you were, I think, you had the right idea that there would be a little bit more representation from Dredge this year. I mean, I doubled my number from the last year and still thought that was high, but it turned out to be two percentage points higher than that, even. Turns out there's just a lot of energy behind Dredge going into champs this year. 
which as we predicted. Yep. Now this next one is curious to me. This is a this is a learning experience right here. Eldrazi. I predicted four. You predicted five. The actual was ten point three. Yeah. More than double your prediction. Both of our predictions. And I think this is really illuminating the fact that Eldrazi, despite doing so much poorer of late, especially against shops, and and this year's results were uh, were no different. Basically, the fact that it's a perceived to be a powerful budget deck i still think just brings people in still yeah i mean i think we first of all i we both understood that the restriction of thorn harmed the tribal eldrazi archetype we also thought that there you know obviously eldrazi was much more powerful going into last year's champs just because it was obviously eldrazi was better against workshops the the eldrazi versus workshop matchup was very different than it was this year all the printings and changes in the workshop matchup have dramatically improved the shop matchup against Eldrazi, whereas last year Eldrazi was actually really strong against shops. So we thought that those the convergence of the budget Jake Eldrazi deck and the Eldrazi matchup against shops and just being a really good deck explained why there was so much Eldrazi. But it actually turns out it was mostly just the fact that you know Eternal Weekend is going to have a lot of budget players who don't have vintage cards or playing Legacy and want to play in the vintage event get the play mat, you know, get potentially compete for budget prize. I think that's what happened here. There's just a baked in core of people who are going to play budget Eldrazi every year. Yep. Agreed. And we'll have to adjust for that in future years. So we're only a few categories left here. Oath. We both predicted 7%. The actual was nine and a half, 9.6 actually. I think part of that is a reaction to, um, to workshops being so well and the perceived advantages that Oath has against workshops. And I also think that there's a little bit of overrepresentation of Oath and Champs each year, and uh, we just didn't ratchet that number up even high enough, even though we discussed it in that episode. The the other the other thing that I made a kind of a, a bit of hay about predicting was Landstill, because you originally had a pretty low number, and I I made the point. Remember the observation I made, Kevin? I said two points yep. that there's a ten, there's a pattern of people showing up with whatever won the year before. Sure, and then also. Landstill, I'd said I'd seen a lot online lately, and then also it won the Vintage Challenge right before our podcast. So I expected around 4%, and I specifically predicted 3.75%, and the actual number was? The actual four? number was 4.45%. <laughs> that was even more than I predicted, but it was, yeah. and I pointed out that the year before, last year, like, I think Landstill was like 2%, so it more yeah. than doubled, which is essentially what I predicted. I said oh, it would double. So yeah. I was off by 7.7%. So, so there are some lessons here. The Despite the power of shops, both perceived and actual, and all of the discussion and success that it had going into it, only 17% is, in my opinion, a shockingly low number. I, I don't, I don't, I, I consider it to be low, but not shocking because we just didn't put enough attention into the fact, I think, that, that it's just hard to build shops in paper. Well... You can't shake the fact, though, that shops has been a significantly higher portion of the field than prior years, especially the year before. I mean, two two years before, I mean. It's true. There was a larger percentage of shops two years before. But the, here's the thing. I mean, as this field gets bigger and bigger, sh- there's a, I think we overestimated the cap on mm. who can actually play shops in a paper event of this size. Just as an okay. overall percentage, it's just hard. You, I mean, having, I remember years ago, there was someone who had like three workshops and played a workshop deck. Having four workshops, especially as, as expensive as it is now, it's just hard to swing. It's just hard well, to swing. 
that's fair and we're going to have to keep that in that concept in perspective as this event grows year <laughs> over year so also, yeah, one other thing i'd like to point to and that is we didn't do a good job i don't think of talking about some of the noise that comes into these numbers uh, at, at the true. lower ends there were fully 3.3 percent playing mono red at champs this year yeah well three and a half percent yeah mono red yeah it's the aaron campbell the the one that that guy who uh did really well a couple months ago on the uh vintage challenge top aided with that budget deck yeah. i mean it's essentially modern sly but yes it's the, the that's a it's a good budget deck you know people again <laughs> people fighting for the budget prize right and also uh, it, it's so funny we, we have breakdowns within breakdowns here again thanks to ryan and matt's work we have the major categories shops Eldrazi, dredge fish oath paradoxical xerox combo big blue blue control their last category is called other that other consists of hate bears mono red lands yeah. yes there are yeah. two people playing lands yeah. at champs that and then there's cool. then there's other 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 <laughs> other other yeah and that's fully two percent of the field was playing other other (laughs) yeah and there's also three percent of the field playing other control right so one of the things we need to do in the future is compensate a little bit but a little bit better i think perhaps for the noise because there were four people playing a two-part monty three people on flash um nine people on merfolk right these numbers add up that that adds up to between 10 and 15 percent of the metagame on decks that we would you know barely even comment on but it all comes to bear in terms of drawing down the other numbers. If you add another 100 people to this event, I think to your point about the difficulty in building shops, if another 100 people show up for champs in two years, they're Shop. not going to be 25 workshop players no. in those 100. No. Because it'll it bring down the percentage scale, even further. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. scale linearly. This is the second largest vintage championship, but, but still, um, it's just hard. It's hard for shops to be that big. Yeah. Um, I, I want to explain press a little bit of hubris here but uh but this might be my best prediction i mean i always say in the past i've we predicted for years now and i also did it on paper before our podcast and i've always prided myself if you can get even within like 20 percent of the actual it's pretty accurate but except for two predictions here kevin every one of my predictions was under three percent yeah i mean that's pretty good the i was three percent off on xerox less than one percent on just guy 2.4 percent on delver 4.4% on Outcome, 1.1% on Bug, 1.1% on Dredge, 2.6% on Oath, and 5.3% on Eldrazi. Except Shops and Eldrazi, take those out. I was within point, uh, 3% on every single prediction. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy. That's good showing. And unfortunately, if restrictions come and things get muddier for the Shops deck, we're going to see this. It's going to get harder to predict the breakout of Eldrazi versus Shops in the future, too. Not that I'm complaining. It's just a, a reality of predicting the metagame. It, there's just some adjustments that you have to make for the big paper event. You know, One of those adjustments are tick up Oath a little bit, yep. uh, tick, tick up Eldrazi, um, push down Shops a little bit, um, push up Delver a little bit. It's just adjustments that we're very familiar with. So Definitely. So let's move, let's shift gears then and talk about how each deck broke down in the top 16 and the top eight, and then talk about matchups. Yes. So the top 16 decks are easy to access because you can find them directly either on Eternal Central or in the Manage Rain thread about champs, the champs results. Either one of those uh, places are good thanks to 
Jayco and thanks to the thread contributors on the mana drain. Right. But just for quick review, the top 16 decks in order. Number one, Ravager Shops. Number two, Ravager Shops. <laughs> Three, Inferno Titan Oath. Four, Ravager Shops. Five, Gristlebrand Oath. That's Ibrahim's with the Sphinx. Six, Inferno Titan Oath. Seven, Ravager Shops. Eight, Ravager Shops. Nine, again, remember that eighth place was on Breakers. Right. So everything from eighth down had the same record was X2, X2, yeah. Nine, Dredge. Ten, Jeskai. Eleven, Ravager Shops. Twelve, Landstill. Thirteen, Dredge. Fourteen, Jeskai Stoneblade. That's a bit of a brew. We can talk more about that. 15 Ravager Shops and 16 Blue Moon. Now, Blue Moon is maybe a little bit of an overstatement. This is red blue control with one Blood Moon and some mana drains, but it's close to being like a, it's like Jeskai minus white. Hmm. It's very close. There's a Pyromancer. There's two Consecrated Sphinx. So it's, it straddles that line a little bit. So again, Steve, the top eight, five shops and three oaths is. In contrast to the next eight decks, which have a, a fair bit of diversity. In fact, there's a lot of decks, decks represented here. Two, Dredge, Landstill, a Stoneblade Brew, Blue Moon, Jeskai. So the whole the top eight doesn't exactly tell the whole story of the event. It's just how things shook out, really. Yeah, I, I think we, why don't we just break down the, the decks and then, you know, start starting at the top. You want to start at the top? Sure, no problem. So, so the first... Obviously, Andy Markenton, who we just interviewed, won, and we talked a little bit about some of the cards that he played. Um, but in our preview show, we actually talked a lot about this kind of deck, Kevin. And um, I'd like... Um, why don't we just play this clip, this clip that, from our preview show? So here we go. Chief of the Foundry is kind of the flip side of it, where I've seen a lot of Steel Overseer. Montolio played me online, and he was playing Steel Overseer, which I think is I think he might have been actually using Chief of the Foundry and Steel Overseer, which is yet another one of those two mana creatures, Kevin. <laughs> yep. that, that you you know, so if you go like turn one workshop, even if you don't have a mox, turn one workshop, uh, Foundry Inspector. Then on turn two, you can basically empty your hand with two two mana creatures. You can play a Ravager, right? You can play a Ravager, a Chief of the Foundry, a Ballista, and a Revoker. <laughs> so in that clip, I talked about. Andy and what I faced online and in him being on Seal Overseer. And one of the things that you actually said in response to me, Kevin, was that Andy had the full 16 two drops, <laughs> which he, f- again, featured here and f- right. with four Ravager, four Revoker, four Overseer, and four Ballista. And, and in fact, he had 18 if you count Hangerback Walker. Uh, he did have the one Chief of the Foundry. But the key distinguishing feature between both the f- frankly, the first and second place decks and the rest of the Ravager decks is that they were on Steel Overseer. Right. I, I actually think, and I said this in the interview with Andy, Steel Overseer was the unheralded MVP of this tournament. It was the card that single-handedly controls the mirror. We saw it, right, where Andy was facing uh, Precursor Golem. The commentators thought he was toast. And he right. just calmly, you know, you know, traded one of the tokens and then ramped with Steel Overseer. And all of a sudden, his things were just bigger than the three threes on the other side. Um, so this kind of quote, which, you know, which people have been saying on the, on the VSL, but I, I think I'm the first to say in our last podcast, the quote, low to the ground, which we just played that quote. Um, this is the low to the ground where, and I, I emphasize this in that quote, which is that all you're doing is, is playing turn one foundry inspector and then dropping a bunch of two drops on turn two. It's a turn three win. It's super explosive yep. and, and it wins the long game. It wins the mirror and it's tactically fantastic in its removal and all kinds of other things. It's really hard to beat. Um, really well positioned 
and that was the key. And 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 Andy talked about the differences between his deck and Rich Rich's deck. Now I did I didn't get a chance to ask Andy about this. I wanted to, but in our preview show, I mentioned that in Andy's top eight deck from the Vintage Challenge, he had um, he had Le- Porcelain Legionnaires in the sideboard, which is another example of that kind of low to the ground. But also also how good is Porcelain Legionnaire against <laughs> Precursor Golem? Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. really, really, it can you know it really slow that down. Um, so I don't think there's any big mystery here. I just think this is the most flexible, resilient, uh, tactically adaptive, and explosive workshop deck we've ever seen. I just think it's the best. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it's it. That's clearly all the things that we were debating before, and we we spent a good I don't know maybe twenty to thirty minutes talking about workshops. In our preview show, we talked about precursors. We talked about tangle wire. We talked about hangerback. We talked about steel overseer, chief of the foundry, foundry inspector, all metamorph, all those things. This event definitively answers the question: What's the optimal way to build it? And the optimal way is not chief. It's st- or any of those things are precursor golem main deck. It's the steel overseer main deck. That's the answer. Right. It also draws into question too: What the proper way to approach the matchup post sideboard is. Andy discussed the fact that he was not convinced about having precursors in the main. Right. He Put him in the side. Them. He's never played he them in, them the, in main. the side. He's never played right. them in the main. Yeah. But but other people have. Many other people have. It's a noteworthy, among other things, that he played precursors in the side and Rich played worm, worm coil engines. Worm coil. Worm coil has been the de facto worm coils plus dismembers really have been the de facto way to fight the mirror for a long time. It's it's, it's been that way for years now. And I just find myself wondering if that if that is no longer the case. So if, outmoded, so yeah, outmoded. It, can you expect to even even if you land a worm coil engine in the mirror? Uh, does that honest, win that game for you in the in the the steel overseer generation? So so here's the thing: if you're myopically focused just on the mirror match, I would rather just have like ghost quarter, you know, like just just keep it low to the ground and ghost quarter them their mana. If if we're talking about a broader set of matchups, then that's where Precursor Golem and Worm Coil become more relevant. Because obviously you side you sideboard in Precursor against like, you know, a lot of control decks too. You know, that yeah. don't have pinpoint removal, like probably bug or something like that. I don't I don't know, maybe bug's a bad example. But um but Worm Coil bec- those cards become relevant in those matchups as well. True. I, I, I don't know. I mean I would I mean, wouldn't you rather just almost have just like dismember and and uh ghost quarters more dismembers and ghost quarters if you if you just knew you're gonna face all mirror matches you know <laughs> i mean based upon what andy said about just being consistent and low to the ground you watch those matchups neither rich nor andy really had many mana they just you know yeah. the, the wastelands take out each other's mana the you know you know the the mocks- I mean, at the end of at the end of the tournament rich had no permits. no permanence right <laughs> so it's like if you want to just be as consistent as possible I would rather be low to the ground and continue that and not have these big, you know, bulky things that you're just praying are going to ramp out. Right, right. Yeah, that basically seems like they're treating all of their mana source, all of their lands as lotus petals. Yeah. And and, and what can you do with the most value and, when and, you're only going to tap this workshop once? And one of the reasons I would use Ghost Quarter is not just to waste their shops, but also critically, it takes out factory, <laughs> yeah. you know? So and we saw that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that Ghost Quarter has been a popular, uh, has been explored by workshop players online. I wonder if that will, uh, I wonder what will happen about this matchup well, basically going forward. I, I think obvi- obviously there, it's not just about the mirror. The mirror is huge. And, and Rich had Sorcerer Spyglass for the mirror, which makes sense. 
by the way. That'll help your that'll help your predictions of Sorcerer Spyglass. But, yeah, but what um, little there will be. Yeah, but um, I think it'll be more than a little. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I I would rather be low to the ground than have these big things. If it was just about the mirror, you know. Anyway, yeah. so let's take. Let's move on then. Yeah, let's look at the third place list and let's talk about the third place deck in combination with the sixth place list. If I can indulge, get ask your indulgence on that. <laughs> well, I don't think that's much of an indulgence. How many cards off are these two lists? Very few. Very so, few. So in third place is Patrick Failing playing. Let's just call it what it is, Brian Kelly Oath. <laughs> right. And in sixth place is Brian Kelly playing Brian Kelly Oath. <laughs> so let's just, a couple things. It cannot be a coincidence that in a 400 and some player event, the top eight had three Oath decks. That's too much of a coincidence. And in particular, two of the three were Kelly Oath decks. Right. In 2015, Kelly won the Vintage Championship. And I think it was a very important shift that happened. A handful of the best players in this event, Brian DeMars, Hiromichi Ito, Rich Shea, Traditionally, Paul Mastriano, traditionally blue players, shifted to workshops. And it was just after the printing of Hangerback Walker. Yep. And they dominated that event. I mean, they were like, all, all of them were in the top 16. But yep. there was one player who sliced through them. And it was Brian Kelly playing his oath deck that I feel was extremely well positioned to beat workshops. He played yep. Ancient, Grudge, Ma- Ancient Grudge's main deck. Once again, he's doing the same thing. The reason I think this Oath deck is in this top eight is because I think Oath, and I said this to you earlier, Kevin, I think Oath is the one blue deck that has the mana producing capacity that can, that can, that can both go on offense and defense quickly enough to compete with the workshop deck. I think it's really the only blue deck that can consistently do that. And to do it, He's gone back to old tech that goes all the way back to what Brian DeMars really did. Right when Lodestone Golem was starting to really dominate the format in 2011, the beginning of 2011, when it was like Lodestone everywhere, the thing that broke out that kind of pushed Lodestone from a really dominant throne was Brian DeMars' control deck with City of Brass and Ancient Grudge. Mm-hmm. And there are just no control deck that can today that can do that and compete against the, all the other decks, like the Jeskai decks and so on. Brian Kelly built a ingenious, once again, like he did in 2015, an ingenious Oath deck that he's been playing consistently online, really tuning up online, playing in the challenges, not necessarily doing really well in the challenges, but certainly doing really well in the leagues, and just allowing himself to get tuned up right up to this event, and he just did really well in this event with the perfect list. Again, he has, it's really well metagamed, he has uh, Fire Spout, Ancient Grudge, and then he's got more of that, two more Ancient Grudge in the sideboard, and his deck his mana base is rock solid in large part because of Forbidden Orchard. The Forbidden Orchard allows him to play the Ancient Grudge, and I think that's the key. That's why Oath, Oath both can def- defend long enough to survive, and then game one, there's not much shops can really do about an Inferno Titan, right? Once you Oath up. Right. So it has this de- early defense with Grudge and removal, and then this, you know, it can also just win very quickly with Oath. So it was kind of perfectly positioned, and it, it has this, all the sideboard stuff as well. Um, but the fact that it didn't win just shows how ridiculously powerful the shops decks, <laughs> shop decks are. And and to be fair, I mean, there was a very specific sequence that allowed Rich to beat Patrick, which was having Metamorph <laughs> on, on the... And, and not only that, but Patrick had to... I mean, the creature that he had to play was really Gristlebrand and, and, and yeah. Rich. But I think that's what's happening here. I think this deck list has just been really, really well-tuned to beat shops. And it's the one control deck that can both Mount a defense and then turn on offense quickly enough 
to actually compete against shops and then have decent enough game against the rest of the field. So I think Brian Kelly essentially did what he did in 2015. He created a perfect metagame deck that is probably the best blue deck you can play against workshops. And that's why he was in the top eight again. If the metagame was more like last year, that was more, let's say, Eldrazi and less shops and more other things, I don't think you could play a deck quite like this. I think you have to have a more a, def- a metagame that's more it's that's more clearly defined in some way. So well, the diff- I look forward to <laughs> Brian Kelly bringing his patented technology year over year for many years to come well, because it's exciting to watch. <laughs> it is, and the technology is that there is no technology except incredible. Uh, flexibility, incredible willingness to try different things. I mean, he plays this Oath deck like the deck that has different strategic options. So he doesn't play it like an aggressive Oath deck. I mean, he literally hard casts uncountable creatures. So let's hone in on the differences between them. The differences are primarily in the sideboard. Yeah, there aren't too many differences in the main. Pat Failing has the same creature base, one Gristlebrand, two Inferno Titans. He has one more uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor than Brian Kelly does. Brian's got one. Pat has two. Pat also made an interesting choice to increase both the Ancient Grudge and the Flusterstorms in the main. Very smart. Yeah. The second Grudge was smart. Yeah. Which, I mean, helps your shop matchup in the sense that where the Flusterstorm came from appears to be from the mental missteps. But obviously this helps your shop matchup because it's it just doubles up the effectiveness of Oathing for one because you get access to two Ancient Grudges out of your graveyard. Pat, Pat and also, it freed up sideboard cards because he has even more hate in the sideboard via a braid and energy flux and Hercules recall. Right. Pat did not run peak or sorcerer spyglass, which Brian really likes that Gitaxian probe effect. Instead, right. he played a third preordain, and as you said, the second grudge. Yeah. Um, also interesting of note in the sideboard, as you put it, Pat's got one mountain in the sideboard. Unfortunately, as he lamented with you and I going into the top eight, he only has one scalding tarn. In his Fetchland package, which yeah. includes two Deltas and what does he has? Uh, a Misty Rainforest. He, he told <laughs> us before the top eight, it was a bit of an oversight in planning. You really should have one more Fetchland that can get that mountain. Yeah. But interesting, Brian Kelly in his sideboard has a Cavern of Souls. Right. And that is clearly a nod to some of the uh, control matchups because he has a bit of a sampling of creatures in this sideboard yes he's got gisella blade of gold knight which is fantastic magus, magus of, of the moat, moat. Yep. yeah which is something he played last time as well as storm breath dragon he really heavily values being able to cast his threats and having them be well positioned kind of game winning threats when they hit storm breath dragon is so good against the jeskai decks because you can't Definitely. plow it that's that's yep. really and then that with the cavern is a strategic trump, a brilliant strategic trump. Yes, it's definitely. Just ingenious on Brian's part. That, that's why, I, you know, when you classify Brian Kelly Oath, I view it's not really an Oath deck. It doesn't fit the lineage of Oath decks. It's not a streamlined, hyper focused deck. It's really the deck. It is, in my opinion, Brian Kelly Oath in 2015 is the closest thing we've seen to the deck perhaps ever in this series. Obviously, Mark Lanigra has a claim on that. Is, that was pretty close, but right. in terms of the kind of spirit of it, of having a bunch of strategic trumps, a five-color deck, you know, instead of City of Brass, you have Forbidden Orchard. I mean, it really is a five-color deck. He's got f- he's got five Rainbow Lands, if you count right. Cavern of Souls, <laughs> you know? And uh, it really is the deck. It's got so many strategic options, so many trumps, control cards. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. He can, go, he can pursue any number of angles he wants, depending on what 
the board state is and what's in his opponent's hands, which is why he runs cards like Peak and Sorcerer Spyglass. Because once he knows what his opponent has, he can choose the route to victory. And it can be any number of routes. It can be going Oath. It can be going Jace. It can be hard casting a creature. It can be uh, going Yawgmoth's Will over the top, right? I mean, he has so many different routes to victory. So, And that's also why you really ought to watch the top eight it's- match between Pat and Brian. We, well, unfortunately, we don't have it. We only have game three. I know, <laughs> but game three is still worth watching. Agreed. And for, for those who aren't following here, the, the top, well, it was the top four match, actually. Wait. No, it was, right? the, it was no, the quarterfinals. It was, it, was the, it was the quarterfinals, sorry. <clears throat> they played their first two games, but then going into game three of Rich Shea's match, they asked them to wait so that they could show all of Rich's match and then the final game of Pat versus Brian, which was which was a cool game. The post-sideboard uh, mind games that go into this kind of oath mirror are fascinating stuff, and it also highlights the flexibility of these decks. So in what we the two decks we skipped over here, in fourth place, Michael Kiesel on Ravager Shops, the key things to point out here are that he has two Fleet Wheel Cruiser, two Hanger Backwalker, and three Precursor Golem in the main. Zero Steel Overseer, as we've discussed before. So he has the larger creature package in the main. And then in the sideboard for the workshop mirrors, he has a Batter Skull, a Steel Hellkite, a Worm Coil Engine, two Crucibles, and two Dismembers. Which might sound like a lot, but in hindsight, truly isn't, as Andy alluded to in our discussion with him. (laughs) Crucible of the Worlds, Crucible of Worlds is no longer where you want to be in the workshop mirrors. No, no offense to Michael, but I think the 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 value of having his deck in this top eight is not analyzing his deck, but is as a reminder, as a <laughs> reminder of what decks used to look like a year ago and how much these workshop decks have evolved. Right? I mean, last year we were talking about car shops going into the event, yeah. and we were talking about thought not seer shops going to the event, and though that is just, I mean, in one year this archetype is completely transformed around this the synergy of Inspector, Ballista. Ravager and Steel Overseer. None of those right. cards, none of them, were I- except for Ravager, were in the top eights of last year. <laughs> so in one right. year, this thing is completely transformed. Kevin, I just wanted to mention one other thing that we didn't mention about Patrick and Brian, which is that Patrick had the Thrun, the last troll in the sideboard, and they both had a monastery. Oh, he had monastery mentor. Right. So, and in, in the match between Patrick and Brian, there was one critical play where Brian could have he bottomed uh, with a dig through time and Inferno Titan that he could have cast and it might have won him the game. But um, anyway, right? interesting to watch. So I think there's no secret, as you put it, that Michael's Ravager Shops list is the old school at this point. Yes. In fifth place, we have Ibrahim, who we already mentioned, the, the other Oath player in the top eight. And he is not on what you would call Kelly Oath. This is a double Gristlebrand, one Sphinx of the Steel Wind, and one Jace the Mind Sculptor. And Demonic Consultation. <laughs> yeah, Demonic <laughs> Consultation. He is also the only Oath player in the top eight to have a show and tell. And he has Key Vault, too. And he has Key Vault, yeah. And his sideboard is a little bit more focused. He has, interestingly enough, three Ley Lines of the Void, whereas the other Oath players have Tormod's Crypt. And he has two Jailers, which I find a little bit comical in an Oath deck. I'm not sure what his sideboard plan is that involves Jailers because I would think you want to keep Oaths in against Dredge still, but that's a separate issue. 
for workshops, he has Hercules recall, two abrupt decays, two energy flux, three nature's claims. That's a lot of anti-workshop technology in the sideboard, but we'll note the lack of any in the main, basically. His main deck has Tinker and Key Vault and Yawgmoth's Will. This is much more of a big blue yeah. configuration. Yeah, this is this does not take advantage of the Ancient Grudge. Right. So and and, he, and and that's why he lost in the quarterfinals, presumably, against the workshop deck. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to understand or perceive all of his match in the quarters. I was standing near it, but I couldn't tell what was happening in the games exactly. I was too far away. Eighth place, the only distinctive feature is that Eric Virgo had Tanglewire main deck. Right. And issued both Steel Overseer and Chief of the Foundry. He ran neither. Whereas Brian, by the way, Brian Durkin in seventh, we should have mentioned, has four Chief of the Foundry. So right. he was on the Chief of the Foundry and Precursor main deck as opposed to the um, Overseer. So, I mean, in, in essence, this top eight has all the things that we talked about in our preview show, but it answers the question that we pose, which is which is the way, that implicit question, which is how do you build it? We have the answer now. Right. We have the answer. <laughs> I think so. That's just a fascinating uh, uh, exercise in the configurations of the various shop decks in the top eight and what came out on top. Well, Kevin, this is quite an amazing, amazing top eight. You know, we have talked with Montolio about the Ratchet Bomb play. We talked a little bit about Brian's decision not to put Inferno Titan in his hand to, to go the control role. Um, I, we mentioned Rich Shea's incredible, I mean, certainly one of the most interesting plays ever in a top eight, Vince Championship top eight was the when Pat hardcast Gristlebrand and then Rich Shea metamorphed it and the metamorph he drew 14 cards and then played so skillfully to play all that stuff to beat to beat Pat because if Pat untaps he just wins well <laughs> and there's this very specific combination too Rich properly identified that Pat had ancient grudge in his graveyard Rich drew into uh, Grafdigger's cage and played it so that shut off the ancient grudge line but that was with the first seven cards that Rich drew he then properly right. realized, after reconsidering Pat's deck list, that Pat still had access to Hercules Recall. Meaning, if Pat had Hercules yes. Recall, <laughs> that everything Rich had just done would be undone, including his Gristlebrand, which is of course an artifact. So Rich drew another seven cards, found Chalice of the Void, properly set it to two after playing some other creatures, of course. And what did Pat pull off the top of his deck, though? Hercules Recall. The exact card that Rich anticipated and played around and played specifically against with Chalice of the Void, and it was exactly what Pat had. So incredible! It was just it was really just awesome. incredible. Masterfully played by Rich, and he he and he got the win. He deserved for it. I think the story, and we're going to transition from our analysis. The story, though, is the fact that for the first time ever, there were five workshops in this top eight. Yeah. Last year, the, last year, 50% of the top eight was taxing. I think there were two or three workshop decks. In 2012, there were four Lodestone decks in the top eight. In 2004, there were four Trinisphere decks. But we've never... So we've had three years where taxing decks were 50% of the top eights. And they were each followed by restrictions. <laughs> we've never had five workshop decks in a Vintage Championship top eight. But it's not just the fact that there were five in the top eight. There were They were 17% of the field. Seven of the top 16, five of the top eight, three of the top four, and 100% of the finals. <laughs> so just if you if you do the percentages, right, the percentages go from 17% uh, of the field, 43.7% of the, 44% of the top 16, 63% uh, of the top eight, 75% of the top four, and 100% of the finals, including the win. <laughs> this is the most dominant performance by shops I've ever seen. And I think it's telling that Montolio said that this, heads up, this would probably beat any shop decks in the past, 
This is the best workshop deck of all time. It's better than Trinistax. It's better than Lodestone Shops. It's better than anything we've seen. And that is ins- that's absurd. <laughs> that is pretty absurd. Obviously, if you were to get back Golem and Thorn, the deck would be even better. But there is something to be said for how explosive this is. I think the problem with the deck is that you just don't have time to interact. It's because it just wins on turn three or four. You just don't really have time to mount a defense. And when you do defend things, it's just tactically resilient. Oh, you're going to blow up my creature here? I'll just put it onto the Ravager, you know? Yep. Or you're going to do this? Okay, no big deal. I'll put it onto my, you know, whatever. You're going to blow up my Ravager? Fine, I'll put it on Mistress Factory, you know? Right. It's like, what do, what do you do? So there may be a problem here. And I also think it's telling there was nothing that could really compete with it except, frankly, a five-color deck that had main deck ancient grudges, right? And, and that could also win very quickly. So I think there are reasons to be concerned about this this a particular metagame. And I'd like to just reference a couple of... Obviously, there have been a lot of discussions online. Kai Buddha and Chris Pakula and a lot of VSL, former and current VSLers raised some concerns. Um, Brian DeMars wrote an article called Workshops Has Got to Go. <laughs> LSV published a video, a five-minute video on workshops, where he basically said he thinks it needs to be restricted eventually. He didn't want to come out and say right now, although whatever. Well, the title of that on video the, is, Is It Finally Time to Restrict Mishra's Workshop? <laughs> exactly. On the way to the site from the airport, I had a ride with someone I won't mention, <laughs> who has a, a keen eye on vintage. And I said to this person, I said, I mean, just like I said in the in the, po- in the preview show that I thought Shops is the best deck and it is a good chance to win this event. I said, and, and the best players playing Shops are the ones who are going to win. And I've completely hampered myself by not playing Shops in this event. <laughs> Wasn't going to do it. And the point I said, I said it, to this person, when it, and I've said this online, I said earlier in, in the year, I said, we are still in the workshop era and we've been for many years now. It's still the best deck. When does workshop eventually get need to get restricted? In our previous podcast, Kevin, I said we, you and I both had red lines in the pre before the last restriction. I said if workshop continues to dominate after the rest- restriction of Thorn, I don't think you can continue to restrict lock parts or creatures. I think you have to go for workshop itself. Mm-hmm. And you said you agreed with that at that point. Yep. In fact, but you opposed the restriction of Thorn. Yep. So I was in the car ride on the way to the airport with someone who's prominent. I won't name who it is. And I said. I think we are eventually, I said even before the event, I think we're going to get Workshop eventually restricted. And this person said he didn't think that Workshop would get restricted ever. They didn't think the DCI would do it. And if they did, they would restrict Sphere first. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what if that, and this is literally what I said to this person. And another, there was an, another person in the car as well. <laughs> and I said to this person, what if there's, what if, and I'm quoting myself, what if there are five Workshop decks in this top eight? And then, you know, it's 35, 30, 35% of top eights for the next five months thereafter. Yep. You know, I mean, and that's exactly what has happened so far. I I think that we're going to go through some options, but I think this archetype has, something has to happen. So let's shift the discussion now from the analysis of the top eight to possible what can be done. Kevin, let's go through the options first. Let's weigh the merits of each option, then look at some combinations. Does that sound good? Sure. So one place to start is sphere of resistance. What are the merits for restricting sphere and what are the, the downsides? Sphere is, and one of the merits is that it is one of the only remaining unrestricted elements of the deck that that actively prevents your opponent from playing spells or interacting. Right, right. Obviously, Revoker is the other one. Obviously, Revoker has its own kind of applications, but Sphere particularly still preys on what is ultimately the most common and popular form of blue control, which are the Xerox decks 
Jeskai right. and Delver and other those, related ones. Those decks, then, you've restricted all the spheres functionally. Right. You know, so those decks should be able to play their things and, and removal, defense, all that stuff. I I think there's I think that's the argument for its restriction. Right. Is probably the it's obviously the card that was under consideration the last round with Thorn. The problem with restricting sphere, number one, is I don't think it will really make much of a difference. The, in fact, it might even make the deck more explosive, not less. <laughs> well, I think just faster, faster out off the gates. Yeah, because and, that slot would it, be replaced by a number of three things. chief of the foundry, right? Three chief. Of the- well, but let's not be quite so specific, though. What I'm trying to get at, though, is it's going to be replaced by cards that fit into one of two broad categories. There are going to be other taxing style cards like spyglass or triangle wire, right? Or it's going to be more creatures. And if yes. you look at the lessons from this top eight, which which Andy did a good job elucidating and we discussed beforehand and and in this show so far, the lessons are basically that if you want to win the mirror, you don't want those taxing effects, right? Right. You don't want Spyglass right. for the mirror, really. They're bad. You don't want <laughs> yeah. Tangle Wire for the mirror. You're just going to get run over instead. So the deck would almost certainly replace, as you just said, those sphere slots with more aggression and become... yes even further down the road of what it has become. Exactly. I mean, just the obvious swap in Andy's deck is minus three spheres plus three chief of the foundry, and he's even better in the mirror match. (laughs) I don't see how a mirror match could possibly beat him, honestly, with that kind of plan. It just doesn't seem possible. So, so here's the thing. Sphere resistance. The other problem is that it's not like we're at at day zero. We're not at zero hour. It's not like restricting sphere. This isn't going to bring you, down to like zero th- sphere effects restricting sphere you still have trinisphere lodestone golem one thorn one sphere and one chalice that's more spheres than workshop decks had in 2003 yeah. before the printing of chalice yep. so they'll still have roughly one sphere a game which is exactly what they want right now <laughs> you know you know it's i mean on on average that's what they'll have one sphere per opening hand and then they can metamorph and copy it right so i i just don't see the restriction of sphere is solving this problem. I think that, but, well, let's let's talk about so. Um, and that's rich, rich. Right before the restriction of thorn, he originally had written this big article where he said he didn't think anything should be restricted for from workshops, and then right before the restriction, he said he thought they should restrict. Uh, was it thorn and revoker? Was what he called for? I don't remember exactly. I don't remember exactly. But but I but on the VSL this week, Rich began the interview by saying he thought that they could restrict multiple lock parts. Yeah. So maybe he's thinking like Revoker and Sphere. I think he's on Revoker as being a restriction. So let's talk about Revoker as being a restriction. Sure. What do you think of that? Well, Revoker is interesting because it hurts the deck's flexibility in many ways. Yes. Revoker is a lot. It's a, you know the mini lodestone. It's a lock piece that also deals damage, which is everywhere the deck wants to be. It's also serving a purpose, a functional purpose in most other matchups. So it's turning off your Jace the Mind Sculptor, your Dak Faden. It's disabling that Time Vault or Key Vault combo. It's yes. uh, it's it's hitting stopping Yogmas bargain. Yeah, it's yeah. bargain. It's hitting Oriox Salvagers. It plays a key role, forcing your opponent to, in those kind of cases, basically have multiple either game plans or multiple answers to you. In the case of say Dak Faden and all the while while you're beating down, right? It, it receives yes. Ravager tokens like a champ and does all these other things. It, yeah, it's one of the few ways that these decks can stop Planeswalkers and things like Necropotence or Bargain. So I th- Now, I obviously, think hitting, Sorceress I think hitting Revoker is, is something... Yeah, that's true. I think hitting Revoker is actually something of a sophisticated analysis of what makes this deck good. 
because it yeah. would remove more avenues of play than hitting most other things would. I I think you're probably right, but I think too, just like Sphere, I don't think it would do much because of Sorcerer's Spyglass. Right. I think that now that that exists, it's it's just redundant, right? I mean, they're running both. I I also like that Revoker is really good in both White Eldrazi and Eldrazi. That's a good point. I I I think that the merits of it are again, it's a restriction that just won't do enough. You, you're probably going to have to hit multiple cards, but I, I think the downside of it is that you hit a card that's used by other archetypes. It's tactic. It does actually useful things in the format, keeping certain things in check. Like we don't want. I mean, Revoker. We don't want Planeswalkers and Bargain and things like that to go rampant. That's part, and, and I think that's a useful function. So I, I actually, I think it's, and it obviously has synergy with Sorceress Spyglass that we've already talked about. I like them in tandem. Yeah. So, so th- that's the upside, and that's the downside for that. Now. Now, what about Ballista? That's a card that a lot of people have mentioned as maybe the turning point, right? I mean, it's printed in January. It's the card that allows this deck to win on turn three. You know, it's the card that you you ramp up the Ravager, you move everything to Ballista, and look, you've gone from fourteen to zero life. <laughs> you know, you you attacked you attacked for seven, and then you do eight damage right. with the Ballista. What do you think about restricting Ballista? You and I did a fair bit of testing leading up to the event. When we were testing our decks against the workshop decks, one of the analyses that I came to, that I shared with you, that was from my own personal testing, was one of the approaches to post-sideboard games was, obviously, you do the basic things to get out from under spheres and make sure you don't die here and counter a threat where you can with force of will, that kind of thing. But frequently, you get into the, if you survive, to the mid-game, we're talking turns three, four, five. That one of the critical analyses of how you proceed once you've got maybe multiple choices and how to deploy your answers is what is the worst possible thing they could still be holding? Or if their hand is empty, what is the worst possible thing that they could pull off the top? And in a a vast majority of post-sideboard games, the answer to that question was walking ballista. It's the thing that just ends the game once you've fought over resources here and there and your life totals below 10 and maybe you're not going to die on this next swing. Walking Ballista is the the, the 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 closer in so many games of this deck. So and it also the, has additional yeah. tactical advantages against other, you know, just opposing creature decks as well as planeswalkers. That is a that is a good point. Uh and I th- obviously Ballista really makes uh the token strategy worse than ever. Um it also is another direct way workshops can deal with planeswalkers. Yep. Um so it gives it a lot of tactical flexibility as well as do- to the head, but here's the problem. So if you restrict ballista, first of all, there's still one ballista, but then you can just go back to a pair or two or three trikes. <laughs> so you've got a backup plan. You know, obviously it's slower, yep. but I, I don't know if that really fundamentally changes anything. Maybe it slows it down one turn. Yeah, so but games on average will go longer. And a little bit that helps. Yeah. That helps every workshop opponent. But you're right. There's the games are still going to end with machine gunning like they did before ballista was printed. But maybe I mean, that's okay. Were playing, you know, maybe pushing this deck playing, to play some six drops is more fundamentally disruptive than we're giving it credit for. I mean, let's recall people were playing four tri- Triskelions before this card was printed. Right. Remember? Right. I mean, it was it was, and even for a while, people were playing still like four of this and one trike. Um, okay, so let's go to another card, Foundry Inspector. People have uh, there's a compelling case for Foundry Inspector. To me, the obvious reason. I mean, look, Mishra's Workshop Foundry Inspector. I did a whole litany of this in our preview show. Turn one Foundry Inspector means on turn two, you can play with the workshop and a mox, basically your entire hand, yeah. <laughs> all the two drops. Specifically it's with like, Andy and Rich's list. 
it's like another workshop that also is insanely good in the mirror and is a tempo play. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably good. But there is something really odd about restricting Foundry Inspector. <laughs> it's just it's just not a, a kind of power, you know, objectively powerful card. It's a contextually powerful card. I think. And yeah, yeah. I think that part of that is because when Foundry Inspector was first printed, you and I and a lot of others kind of dismissed it at first. It was a slow In burn. Kaladesh set review. But yeah. as you've just analyzed, and one of the trends among all these other trends is that as soon as you, the more you replace four drops with two drops in this deck, the better Foundry Inspector gets, right? If your hand, if you go Workshop Foundry Inspector and your hand is three or four other two drops, basically Foundry Inspector is inversely effective with the average mana cost of your deck, (laughs) which sounds, sounds, sounds like counterintuitive, right? It's a mana producer. You want it to help you cast big things. Well, no. Right. You want it to help you no. cast more Maybe things. Because tons of small things, right. yes. So if you tap four mana and play four two drops on turn two, that thing produced four mana more, as, opposed exactly. to, as opposed to you tapping four mana and casting a five Producing drop, right? A, yeah, a lodestone Right, golem. then it only yeah. made one mana. So the more spells yeah. you play off it, it's like a storm card, effectively. Yeah, it is. It's Baral. And, yeah. Right. And... And short of the deck starting to play one drops, which a one drop would have to be pretty amazing for us to start playing one drops in shops. Right. Um, short of that, this card is almost at its peak value now in shops, as we alluded yes, to before. The sixteen the plus the two drops. Uh, in fact, as I mean, it's it's part and parcel with the restriction of all these other cards. If you restrict sphere, right. the deck could it just, gets even better. Yeah, the founder inspector <laughs> could give you better. So. I, again, similar to Revoker, I think it's something of a sophisticated um, analysis to say that this might be the kind of card you hit, but at the same time, you're still left with all the all these other problematic hands. Exactly. It just so, so yeah, yeah, exactly. So you restrict Foundry Inspector. It doesn't really stop your opponent from going, you know, you know, Ravager, uh, one of your restricted spheres or sphere resistance on turn one, right. and and then next turn. Ballista slash and Steel Overseer, right. and then it's game over on turn three. <laughs> I mean, it's, it it's it helps. It, it definitely, if you want to slow down the deck, that is a possible target. But let's talk about Ravager. Ravager is an even more. I mean, look, Ravager has a pedigree. It's been banned in formats. Yep. It's banned in 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 uh in certainly in standard. I don't know if it is in in modern or it's, not. It's not, but it uh, has. It was banned in standard. Yeah. What about Ravager? Ravager is one of the cards that creates most many of the shenanigans. It's the biggest threat. It's the card that protects Precursor Golem. It's the card that makes Ballista so lethal. What about Ravager? Ravager is something of the linchpin, right? Yeah, it's the thing that makes it's the thing that makes the removal so difficult against the deck. Ineffective. Yeah, yeah. It's the thing that makes the Ballista such a threat. It's the thing that makes Dak Faden so manageable for the deck aside from revoker of course yes yes it's the sort it, and it's the thing that makes precursor golem uh, in more like a three for one in certain contexts or at least a two for one if you if you're managing against removal so i just i can't shake the notion that this deck without ravager opens up so many possibilities for its opponents there are many times many hands especially post sideboard hands where i just look at my removal and think I'm going to need two more removal spells to not die because the power just moves around the board with this Ravager. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Ravager indirectly dramatically lowers the power of Ballista. So if you were seriously considering restricting Ballista, restricting Ravager is sort of like restricting Ballista. It makes it it keeps <laughs> Ballista it keeps Ballista focused, but it doesn't allow it to become a Tommy gun. So it slows down the the workshop deck dramatically, I think. And and it also make, doesn't it makes scale. removal yeah. it makes removal that much more effective, right? Now if yes. you shattering spree, you know one thing for one red or grudge, uh, yeah. that power just doesn't go. That just doesn't go anywhere. It stays on that the board be, effectively. Uh, now we're going to turn to the big one, workshop. But of the ones we've discussed so far, the one that actually is most intriguing to me is restricting ravager. I think it's the one that has the most like, kind of secondary effects. Yeah. Um, so now we'll turn to workshop, and this is obviously hugely controversial. For, for very good reasons. Let me just set this up a little bit before we dig into it. So, number one, I've been a big defender of Misha's Workshop for almost two decades. I remember when Workshop... Obviously, we were some of the first people, Kevin, to actually play Workshop decks at the high level in Type 1 mm-hmm. um, in tournament. And not too long after that, people were really complaining about Workshop. I mean, there was a huge cry, Oscar Tan and others, to restrict Workshop. And I wrote letters to the DCI and public letters defending Workshops. I defended Workshop for years and years and years. I am actually at the point where I think Workshop is a legitimate candidate for restriction. Now, let's go through some of the issues. I want to save some of the community issues for a minute, but let's confront the big, big issue. <laughs> the big, big issue is price, the value of Mishra's Workshop. The second big issue, it might vie for it, is we, and I've always felt this is important. I think it's important that there is a, a brown or, or tax, big taxing deck in the format. You know, in the in early years of the format, it was Nether Void. But once Sphere of Resistance was printed and Mishra's Workshop was unrestricted, it became the taxing strategy, the O'Brien School became workshops. I think it's important that that strategy exists at a high level in this format. I think it's a pillar, not workshop itself, but that kind of strategy. Right. And and that and also it's an alternative to just playing blue decks or hate bear decks or whatever or dredge. Right. So I think those are important things. Let's address both of them. The first, starting with the first, I pulled informally pulled some finance people, and if Mistress Workshop is about seven hundred and fifty dollars a pop right now, the consensus seems to be that works restricting Workshop would not make it fall more than a hundred to hundred and fifty dollars. So you would have Workshop fall, you know, in the library ranges where people were were quoting. It's still a four of an old school. You still get to play a one. You would still play a one of it in vintage. Yep. So the price argument is not really compelling. It's not like it would go from a seven hundred and fifty dollar, eight hundred dollar card to like fifty bucks. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. That that's just not not going to happen. Right. And in fact, it's possible though that that if Mishra's Workshop were restricted a few years from now, its price point could exceed its current price right now because of both inflation and appreciation, but also as a one of. Let's go to the second point. If it were restricted, what would happen to this archetype? Two years ago, I would have said unequivocally, this archetype is completely done. <laughs> right. But, what happened two but, years ago? <laughs> yeah, what happened was the printing of Eldrazi Temple, right? I mean, Eldrazi Temple and I I mean, Eldrazi Temple and the Eldrazi mean that you can actually build a colorless deck. Hell, I mean, look at Andy's deck. Andy's deck, if you it, because it's all two drops, there's nothing. He, the, the cards that cost more than three, which means you can't cast. You need more than an ancient tomb and a mox. Are lodestone golem? That's the only card in the main. The only card in the main. Yeah. The only one. So what is Mishra's Workshop really doing here? It's just making this deck even faster. Yeah. If you took if you took three Mishra's Workshops out of this deck, 
right? Yep. And you replace them with three city in, of traders, this deck can function. Yep. If you if you then rebuilt it with uh, rebuilt an Eldrazi deck or white Eld- I mean Eld- a colorless Eldrazi deck, you can play almost all these things, but then you can play the four Eldrazi temples and you can add four thought not seers and four uh reality smashers and this deck can function just fine too. Yeah. So I believe that if Mishra's Workshop were restricted, you'd have multiple variants of colorless Eldrazi and even perhaps decks like this that were would perform just fine. I mean, people might cringe when I hit said City of Traders, but let's not forget the mud decks from the early two thousands all the way up to this decade played City of Traders. Yeah. You remember that, Kevin? I mean they all used to, it used to be the standard mud base, the mono brown workshop base yep. used to be four workshop four ancient tomb, four wasteland, one strip mine, one academy, and then like maybe some factories, but definitely like one to two city of traders. Yep. City of traders was a, a mainstay in the mud for in the mud archetype. If workshop was restricted, I still think that Eldrazi and even just mud would be a upper tier deck. I don't think that changes anything here. And if you restricted workshop, then you, I believe you could unrestrict all the cards that have been restricted because of Workshop, including Trinisphere and Chalice. And in fact, I would, just to make sure that it's sufficiently powerful. Not beca- Because I like having a small restricted list, and I, I think those cards would have to prove their brokenness again. Yeah. Because I, I think Lodestone is perfectly fair if Workshop would be restricted. And I think Trinisphere and Chalice and Thorn could all be restrict- unrestricted as well. But what do you think? Well, it's worth noting how much more fragile Trinisphere is when you play it off of a City of Traders, right? Or Ancient Tomb, even. Yeah. Ancient Tomb, a little less so, but I'm talking specifically about City of Traders, right? You play sure, City of Traders, sure. Mox, Trinisphere. That has all manner of complications <laughs> for how it's going to go. And I also like the notion that will create even more gray area between Eldrazi and workshops today. I like the notion that, because it's not just an obvious thing to just add eight large Eldrazi and four temples to this deck, right? It takes some massaging and you got to figure out how good is Ravager still? How do I play still Overseer? Do I really want these reality smashers or do I just stick with the thought not seers? All those questions are great, yeah. great questions. And that interesting from a deck design standpoint, they reward deck construction and, and players who really dig in, which players would. Yeah. So I like all those elements of it. I am, I'm personally, I'm not compelled by the, the monetary uh, approach, the monetary argument at all, really. The people who really suffer are, I guess, people who have a high volume of workshops, maybe, uh, or old school players who want to keep the four anyway, but they just got, you know, four to $600 less valuable, I guess. But to your point, it's worth realizing that that reduction would almost certainly be undone over time. The card would continue to rise in price back to where it was. Now, savvy people might say, okay, but that point would be $150 lower than it could should have been. And I would say, maybe not. Maybe not. It's difficult to say. I don't think there's any guarantee that a restriction just makes it patently X so- dollars cheaper for the rest of its time. I don't, I don't think it works that way. Right. Exactly. I mean, we, I mean, look... It's conceivable that so here's here's one way it could go up in price. So Mishra's Workshop's restricted. Suddenly this deck becomes much more affordable. You actually increase the demand for Mishra's Workshop in some sense, in that people want to play this low to the ground Eldrazi deck or whatever, and you have more demand for workshops than you did in the long run before. <laughs> yeah, and specifically to your point, what you're talking about is the there were 44 people who played Eldrazi at Champs this year. You have to believe that some number yes. of those people would say. Oh, I only need one shop? Okay, I guess I'll go get yes. that. Yes. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it wouldn't be a small number. I would say, no. I don't know, 20 to 20 to 40 percent maybe of those people would be in a position to it, say, oh, I, if I only need one shop, then I'll go get it. And it's an old school, obviously, would continue to increase the drive demand for four workshop decks. I mean, you could play four workshop decks in old school. I'm totally sympathetic yeah. to the argument of control workshop players from back in the day. But look how look at the progression of workshops. You go right. from 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 like old school five color stacks or mono brown mono red stacker to to trina stacks to lodestone stacks to to you know car shops to where we are today. This is the most aggressive shop stack we've ever seen. It just gets faster and faster, and it makes sense. The more spheres you restrict, the more you're you're creating liftoff at the outset of the game. So this plan that we have, so let's now evaluate what you would actually do. But let me, let me I'll, I'll go first, since I'm on this rant. <laughs> okay. Since I'm on the rant, I think that this plan of continuing to restrict spheres is, is bad. It's not going to slow down the deck. In fact, it's going to make the deck faster. It's still going to have a critical mass of spheres to be disruptive. And I just don't think there's any way, there's no end to that. I also like what the spheres do in the format. I like what Sphere Resistance does in the format. It's a tactic that's important against combo and things like that, and 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 Xerox decks. I would much, of all these options, I'm intrigued by a one more intermediate step. To me, it would not be Sphere. It would probably be Ravager. And God, it's just so hard to. I don't want to restrict Revoker, but I I just I said this before. I think it's time. I think Workshop. If you don't restrict Workshop, you're just delaying the inevitable. I think it's a. I think it's inevitable. I never. I didn't think it was inevitable. But I think what the last couple of years have proven is that the new work artifact printings have outpaced the competition. The fact that in the last year you get Foundry Inspector, Ballista, and Steel Overseer just is like, whoa, what is going on here? You know. So I. I think in Chief of the Foundry, I just and then before that you get you know, these vehicles, and then you get, before that, you get Hangerback Walker and all this other stuff. Right. I think, I think if you, if you do not, this deck is the best deck in the format. It has the highest win percentage. It has the highest penetration rate in terms of all all the metrics, in terms of performance, top 16, top 32, top four. If you don't, you have to do something, in my opinion. It's a matter of what. If you do any of these intermediate steps, you're eventually going to get to workshop, and then you're going to have to undo all the work you did before then. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to unrestrict all the things that you did. So I'm a, I'm of the opinion that workshop should be restricted, and I would simultaneously unrestrict Trinisphere, Thorn, Chalice, and Lodestone Golem. What would you do of all those options, Kevin? <sighs> well, or would you wait? Um, first things first, I would wait. Now, I would wait because what I'm looking for is the fallout from champs. I know there's all this precedent. The, the challenges in September and October... I, I know I've yes. heard those things, but the, Win the simple yeah. truth is, is that champs is going to create some fallout. It's going to create some backlash. Certain people are going to say, well, shops is the best deck. They're going to play it or keep playing it online. Like I don't expect Montolio to change his tune or Rich Shea, for example. But Rich is an ex- interesting example. Rich is the sort of person who will experiment and say, what can I do to beat this current crop of shops? So I just want to see the fallout. People are still going to keep going. Brian, the Brian Kellys of the world are not going to just switch to playing shops and give up. That, I am. <laughs> if if nothing changes, I'm playing shops. Well, that's why I'm saying the watch and see yeah. what changes, right? If shops continues to do what it did before champs and and be in the in the 35 or or greater percentage of the challenges, and it just keeps putting up three to five, per, you know, persons in the top eight, then then I think something needs to be done. Now that having been said, and I said this with a couple of after hours groups during champs, I think you were included in at least one of them. 
the concept of restriction throughout the history of magic has been a more akin to a scalpel than a like a sledgehammer. It has been historically this is the problem. Here, let us address the problem. There, now the problem's gone, right? That's, I, I think you would agree that that is the vast majority of what restrictions were meant to accomplish, right? We're past that point with this archetype. There is no smoking gun. As we just elucidated, I talked about a half dozen cards, and in every case there was a, yeah, this would change this, but it would leave this, and you'd replace it with this. There's no one thing you can take out of this deck. It's a, exactly. It's a homogenous... Exactly mass it's a stew yeah Yeah, it's 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 just incredibly incredibly homogenous which is a word that we haven't used yet in this show but it describes both the power and the utility of the thing and the effectiveness of it and why this particular build was so good right this is andy and rich's approach was the most homogenous of all the lists in the top eight etc etc the fact that the deck has coalesced around this approach of efficient mana costs and the synergies between them means that you it's not like a three-legged stool you can't kick out any leg of this thing and have it fall apart yeah i don't even think restricting workshop would make this fall apart and as you pointed out there's only one card that costs more than three right so no card we just i think we just covered it there is no card you could restrict it would make the thing fall apart then at, at which point you must realize okay one of two things is going to happen i'm going to just choose what i think is the most the most powerful or the thing that's going to hurt the deck the most which is a very difficult decision owing to the the short version of what we just laid out and also what do i expect to happen in the future i'm going to have to make a choice now that is going to involve future considerations because you kick that sphere out and they replace it with either smaller creatures or spyglass and the deck keeps winning what's your plan after that and i think i said this during one of our prior episodes about this discussion (laughs) basically any approach right now has to have a plan for what you're going to do next Exactly. What, that's that's the issue. Yeah. What you so if you're okay with restricting, say, sphere now, and then coming back in six to twelve months and restricting Ravager, then okay. I mean, that's a plan. I don't love it, but it's a plan. If you're okay with restricting three to four cards before you get to workshop, <laughs> then that's a plan, I suppose. But it's not a great plan. And t- and from your perspective, Steve, you're saying. And I, and I agree with you for the most part, you're saying that all these other cards that are restricted because of shops can come off the list. One of the stated goals that you and I share, and you've been very vehement about yes. over the years, is a smaller restricted list. Exactly. And I don't want to see another sphere and then two to three more creatures come off the list. And I, I just don't want to play in a vintage environment where we've got eight or nine cards restricted because of workshops. And then exactly. they finally have to rip off sense. the Band-Aid and say, fine, we'll get rid of That's this card that was saying. the problem all along. That's exactly what I'm saying. That brings me all the way back to, I think it's time to hit workshop. I think think we've talked. Wow. I mean, I said it before. (laughs) Yeah, you did. You Um, did. But you're doubling down. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's it's the thing that's causing all of this problem. And it's the thing that's going to continue. And one of the things we haven't said necessarily explicitly today, it's the thing that makes all future printings problematic too. Right? Exactly. It's the thing that's making Spyglass problematic. (laughs) Yeah. You know, years even as, ago, even that's minor. Year, years ago, we used to say, you know, this is maybe more than a decade ago. We used to say, man, if you ban Talarian Academy, look at all these cards you could unrestrict. You could unrestrict <laughs> Mind Over Matter, right. Dream Halls, Grim Monolith. <laughs> right. You know, well, we restricted, unrestricted all those cards, and they didn't make a damn bit of difference because Academy wasn't central to the metagame. 
Workshop, it's funny to say it, but it's the it is the card that makes all these other cards restricted. Yeah. Now maybe maybe you can restrict Workshop and like I said, a year and a half ago I would have said you restrict Workshop, this archetype is just dead. But maybe you could actually restrict Workshop and you unrestrict these four sphere effects and maybe they're still too good. Maybe this deck is still too good and then you have to restrict you start down that road again. Let's restrict Chalice and then yeah. restrict Trinisphere. But let's find out. Let's make that trade. Uh, so he, so I want to address just a couple of other things that came up. The three there's there's three arguments that I hear with with the, the suggestion around r- workshop. One is let's wait more time, right? That this is a fresh meta game. It's the post champs meta game. No m- new meta game is truly fresh. Now there are some meta games that are truly fresh, like for example when they simultaneously restricted gifts ungiven and unrestricted gush. Right. That was pretty much a new meta game. You just like wiped out <laughs> like what came before. Or the metagame where they um res- they did the apocalypse vintage apocalypse where they restricted <laughs> gush merchant scroll brainstorm ponder and flash right like what that and then you know and then a few months later errated time vault that was pretty much a fresh metagame but it was really a metagame that harkened back a few years before when control slaver and and TPS were battling it out you know we've been in a period now of of really workshop dominance since I want to say lodestone's printing but it's clearly been dominant. Since the printing of Hangerback Walker, right? That it's just been the best deck. The, the the one exception, the interlude, was the the period before Hangerback where um, Treasure Cruise and, and Dig Through Time and Mentor were printed, and shops didn't do really well that year in the Vintage Championship because it was all Treasure Cruise decks. Right. But the but really, I mean, the performances of Brian Kelly in 2015 and the performance of Mark Lanigra in 2012 really masked how dominant shops was. I mean, those de- those top eights were dominated by shops but they were masked because shops didn't win at the event yeah and so they were the kind of the they didn't reach the very pinnacle even though they were the best i think we're beyond that i think we're we, you know we've restricted all these cards in shops and what we've done is we've also restricted cards that are good against shops <laughs> so it's like how can we restrict mentor and expect shops to be worse the whole theory that rich had laid out that turbo xerox decks were were propping up shops has been completely disproven there's no question about that. Yeah. Right. You you completely agree. I do. I mean, there's, I mean, there's that has been com- definitively refuted. I also think it's clear that if Gush were unrestricted, it wouldn't have made much of a difference in this event at all. No. Gush, Gush was, and, and clearly now we can see the problem was Mentor, not Gush. Yeah. You could unrestrict Gush and Probe, probe and it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference. Yep. Um. He, here, here are some of the common arguments that come. So, first of all, this is not a fresh meta game. We are living. We've been living in a workshop world for several years now, perhaps even more than a decade or a, d- a decade. And it's clear what the better part of a decade. It's clear what's been happening. And you know, I don't think there's any doubt. You know, in my mind, there's no doubt in my mind that if nothing is hit, it's going to continue to fe- to 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 metastasize and fester. So this not. A, it's, I don't think that we need to see the metagame have more time to make a, a well-informed decision here. I think that there was an open question as to whether workshop should have been restricted instead of thorn. Yeah. So, well, that's you know, what, anyway, that's what we said. <laughs> right. Second, second point. A lot of people say that, you know, well, one of the reasons workshop is doing so well is because all these blue decks are playing misstep, flusterstorm and pyroblast. A couple, a couple points to re- refute this. Number one, if that were really a true or compelling argument, then why the hell did the DCI restrict chalice and golem and thorn? You know, the, the, if anything, those cards saw more play than they do now. Flusterstorm sees less play than it d- did two years ago. Yep. So, so to say that like the 
prevalence of those cards means that the blue decks aren't fighting workshops and therefore you know workshop shouldn't be restricted undermines the validity of the restrictions of golem chalice and thorn relatedly there are structural reasons that those decks play that play those cards obviously blue decks are usually about 50 percent of the field and shops as we've seen are you know between what 17 and 30 percent post restriction of thorn yep you obviously have to design decks to beat the metagame you know it's like why do shop decks as matt murray pointed out why do why can't why are shop decks playing these spheres and thorns which are terrible in the workshop mirror you know it's like <laughs> it's because they're good in other matchups right so there are structural reasons in the metagame why people play cards that are bad against shops it's it's you know you you, you have to do it um the, the 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 third point that sometimes comes up and people really don't understand vintage make this argument but they complain about how blue vintage is and that restricting workshop would make vintage even bluer or that this is all about blue mages wanting to neuter non-blue decks that just could not be further from the truth the fundamental problem with vintage is that is this and i've said this in earlier podcasts but it needs to be said again vintage is a format where after onslaught you can build three and four color decks three especially very comfortably with basics and alpha duels the interaction of alpha lands and onslaught fetch lands means that it's possible to build without city of brass and five color lands a consistent resilient mana base that always will be at least three colors and often four with very little difficulty mm-hmm. in a f- game that is only five colors now if this game was designed as six or seven colors <laughs> That's one thing. No, if it was designed with more colors, that wouldn't be an issue. But the fact that it's so easy to play a three or four color deck means this. If you're going to always play three colors, just start filling in three colors. Which colors are you going to play? There's almost It's going to be very, very rare if you're playing a multicolor deck that blue is not going to be one of the top three colors you'll include. It blue, it, it's nothing to do inherently with the color blue. It just has to do with the fact that all it takes to splash Ancestral Recall and Time Walk in any deck you want to play is frankly one or two two dual lands. That's all you need. Right. Because you can play f- any combination of fetch lands with one or two dual lands, and then you can play a blue deck, blue cards. And so, the this argument that it's all about just making like vintage will always be predominantly blue, but what people ignore is that there are going to be different combinations of colors within that. It, it's just a fundamental feature of the interaction of alpha lands and fetch lands. So just if you were to list. Take a piece of paper, write one, two, three, four, five. You des- want to design a deck from scratch. Start what color you want to start with. Start with any color in Magic. And next to that number one, put black or red or green or white. And then get to your next color and then your third color. It's going to be very, very, very rare that blue would be the fifth or fourth color that you'd want to include simply because Ancestral Recall and Time Walk exist. So, so this idea that vintage is too blue just completely ignores the fact the contextual fact that magic is only composed of five colors and that the interaction of dual lands alpha dual lands and fetch lands means that almost any well-designed resilient deck is going to be at least three colors that isn't colorless or dredge so it's just a complete fallacy that this is about blue versus non-blue it completely ignores just the fundamental facts of the game this is not about blue versus non-blue this is about the fact that workshops are way too good right now. They're too fast, they're too resilient, they're too flexible, they're the best they've ever been, and they're dominating this format. To quantify something that you just observed using the data we have in front of us at Champs, the the portion of the, the, the vintage metagame at Champs that basically used colored mana yes. was effectively 
I'm, I'm rounding a little bit here, but 76%. Yes. That basically <laughs> carves out the workshop decks and the tribal Eldrazi, leaving in white Eldrazi, mind you, right. and every other deck. So about 75% of the field is, is y- using colored mana to cast spells. Right. Of that <laughs> 75%, only about, let's say, 15. I'm rounding again, but ballpark, no, it's, it's closer to 12. 12 to 15% of the metagame is fewer than three colors. That's yes. the one in two color decks. Of that 75, right. only about 12 to 15% are one or two colors. That's the mono red stuff, which is surprisingly 3, 3%. Blue white land still, uh, dark petition. Well, there's only two DPS players. And it's stuff that's hard to see, like a couple of painter players. I can't tell how many colors painter is these days. But, right. but that's the reality of the situation to, to quantify what you've just said. About 60 to 65% of the metagame is three or more color decks right and if you're playing three or more color decks you're almost always going to be playing blue at least as a splash yeah now i think that the real blame for that for the predominance of blue it lies on onslaught not alpha because without onslaught in fetch lands i mean there were fetch lands before onslaught this you know (laughs) you wouldn't have you wouldn't be able to play three or four color decks with a blue splash with basics being fetched on turn one yeah that that's the issue (laughs) and and, and, you know, I mean, uh, obviously, it's still the f- the true that if you're playing, you know, obviously, there were a lot more two and one color decks before the Onslaught fetch lands. They fundamentally changed the game. And we were both shocked when they were printed. Yeah. You know, because then you could play four color decks with basic lands on turn one. <laughs> Pretty unbelievable. It's amazing to think what vintage would look like without fetch lands. It, it really is. So anyone who's upset or anyone, any, let me just clarify this. Anyone who says that anyone calling for the restriction of workshop is really just wants blue to be, be better and bigger fundamentally misunderstands the construction of vintage, the vintage format and the role the onslaught fetch lands play in, in shaping color distribution. Number two, it's n- it's, it becomes a binary then. Uh, either It's not about blue. It's, I would love to see more non-blue decks, but once you go from colorless to color... <laughs> once you add fetch lands then it's going to be blue they're going to be blue decks it's yep. just because of the so so the fundamentally anyone who makes that that argument fundamentally fundamentally misunderstands the structure of the of magic frankly and vintage <laughs> so constructed magic yep so where do we go so, from here well that's the question before the 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 the, uh, the community and the dci uh, i think there, there's two obviously two generally speaking approaches one is the next ban and restricted list is when, so they, they they can they can either pull the trigger immediately or pause and just watch the fallout. You know, obviously they just didn't did something, so the next one will probably be in January, right? So there's going to be time regardless. But in January they could say we, we want a little bit more time to observe what's happening, which is not unreasonable. But if things are as they are now, I'm playing workshops next year. It's just it's just too darn good. Yeah, just to clarify what you just said, since we had an announcement technically on October 17, which nothing happened and we didn't even bother discussing, we didn't expect anything to happen. But it says in that announcement that the next one is on January 15, 2018. Got it. So, it, it, you know, they can either on January, they can either wait because it'd be a couple more months or they can do something. And that something is going to be, I suspect, either sphere, number one, sphere, number two, a combination of cards or number three, workshop itself. Those are those are the four options. Wait sphere a combination of creatures and sphere or workshop itself those seem like the options it would be shocked if they just restricted one card that wasn't sphere that would be really weird i suppose it could be like ravager but that would be i think pretty weird don't you think 
I it would be weird. I think another way to put it is it would be unintuitive. We've discussed yeah. the effects and how they play out, but I'd still think that the DCI they're getting more sophisticated, I believe, as time goes on, and they're looking more closely at the drivers for vintage. I think that's clear, but I also think that they're they still treat it a little bit like a scalpel and I still think the popular opinion is that workshop is a taxing archetype. Therefore, you should cut back on the taxing. Yeah, tr- true enough. I, I just I think I'd rather have Sphere and Thorn in the format in in those those decks. I mean, I remember Mike Flores's mono black deck years ago that had four Sphere and was brought in against the uh, Academy decks. Yeah, I just think having that effect in the format is important. And I I mean, we there's still is Thalia. Uh, <laughs> right, Thalia 1.0, but that's I would be I I would prefer to have sphere resistance in this format. Well, I think that's fair. I think that it's also fair to try and keep the O'Brien school around. Exactly. Even though today's <laughs> deck are are distant relatives, right? Yep. And and Sean, to his credit, actually played with Smokestack at Champs this year. I loved it, which was I pretty awesome. It. And you could see him on camera in a feature match against Solly during the Swiss. Well, obviously, <sighs> our question for our audience this episode is, <laughs> what do you think should be done about the ban and restricted list going forward for Vintage? Do you think action should be taken? And if so, what action? Yep. We look forward to hearing from you. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 73 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next, champs, we wish you many insane plays.